Turn it on and rip the knob off. Hey guys, welcome back to the Wrestling Memory Grenade. We're we're now in December. I'm your host, Ray Russell. Joining me, Steve Ekstat once again. Steve, I wanted to say what episode number it was, but I was looking down at my notes and I saw 17 and I thought, that can't be right. Are we really already on episode 17? But no, we really are, I guess. Wow. <laughs> Time flies when you're having fun, man. It's been a blast so far and it's crazy to think 17 episodes already. It's crazy. Yeah, and we've been busting out pretty much two weeks at a time lately because we got five shows to cover each week from the NWA. And this week, no different. Another two weeks of NWA goodness, uh, the weekends of August 12th and August 19th. But first, there's plenty of news to get into. First, I want to thank Jim Cornette. That's at the Jim Cornette on Twitter. He retweeted and commented on the Skyscrapers match, the infamous Skyscrapers match we discussed on last episode, where they took on the blobby-looking avalanche, not to be confused with John Tenta avalanche, and a, a fellow by the name of Mike Blackwell. And uh, Jim chimed in that Mike Blackwell was, uh, as we, as me and you both pondered, taken care of in the locker room. I did a little more digging. I went on YouTube. There's a fellow, I don't know if you've ever seen him on YouTube, by the name of Hannibal. He does, um, I guess what you would call a little miniature shoot interviews with some of the wrestlers. He brings this incident up to Dan Spivey himself. He prefaces it by saying, I'm not sure if you remember this, and he starts to go into the story, and Dan Spivey immediately knew the story, basically finished the story for him. And uh, Spivey uh, concurred that uh, the the young man got it far worse backstage after the match. And Jim Cornette basically said the same thing. So, so uh, needless to say, Mr. Blackwell was uh, handled very well backstage and sent packing on his way. I did do a little more research, and uh, it popped up on Reddit. When I saw Blackwell initially in the ring, the first thing I thought of was the Dogs of War. They were a tag team in Dallas. And it was because of the gear. It wasn't necessarily because of his look. It was because of the gear. That's basically how the Dogs of War dressed. Buster and Butch Blackheart were their names. The Blackwell, again, leads into the Blackheart. I remembered them being a little more pudgy, out of shape. Maybe I was thinking of the other Blackheart because I found that this was indeed, I believe, Butch Blackheart of the Dogs of War who wrestled in Dallas and the tail end of world class into the USWA circuit. I think they even popped up in Global uh, a few times. At least uh, one of them did anyway. So I looked up Butch Blackheart, and lo and behold, if you go to YouTube, spitting image, same exact guy. So this is definitely the same guy that actually got some work, you know, in the tail end of of the Dallas territory anyway. So you would think he would know better. Uh, But the story also goes, and I don't know, you know, I don't really have anybody to base this off of, but he came there and agreed to wrestle on the, the show as long as he didn't have to do a job. I don't know many guys, enhancement talents that are going to walk in and, and make that comment, so I don't know if that part's true, but uh, supposedly this was his way to fight back. Oh, you're going to make me a job? Well, I'm going to no-sell. Uh, and that still doesn't explain how it made it to air, but that's the story I got between uh, Dan Spivey, Jim Cornette, and just some of the other research I did over the last week. I'm not surprised they made it to air. They have no idea what the hell's airing and what's not airing and what they're supposed to be sending and things like that. So that doesn't surprise me at all that it made air. But that that kind of adds up 
like you said, enhancement talent just doesn't go out there and do whatever the hell they want unless they really want to get their ass kicked, like kind of how he did. So that, that kind of makes sense. I, I thought when I first saw him, I was like, this dude looks like he could be something. He was jacked. I mean, for uh, an enhancement talent, he was pretty cut up and he looked the part. Like He looked like an actual wrestler that would have a, a, a gimmick or something like that. So I, I'm not surprised that he was working elsewhere, but it's just one of those things that happen, I'm sure. <laughs> and Lucy lived to tell about it, right? Yeah, yeah, he made it out of there alive. I mean, the guy looks like a legit biker. I guess what threw me off was, you know, when I first saw that was I literally that was the first thing that came to my mind because if you watch, if you ever watch any of that footage from Dallas, that's how the dogs of war dressed. It's just that I, I for some reason, I remember them being a little more out of shape. And maybe I was just thinking of the other member of the tag team. Maybe that's what the situation was there. But yeah, so it was cool. Did a little digging, got a lot of uh, information there. So thank you once again for the second time now to Jim Cornette, who has retweeted us and given us a little more insight into 1989 NWA. I appreciate it. I mean, it's, al- it's always good. It's always cool to hear these stories. I think that's one of the things that we sought out to have happen with the grenade is not necessarily just talk about what we see on TV, but uncover facts and truths and, and things like that that happened at this time. So pretty cool that we're able to do that. Yeah, and so just to reiterate, Dan Spivey said that the young man got it far worse in the locker room afterwards, so he got his comeuppets. (laughs) I can only imagine. I also posted a a quick video online of Missy Hyatt getting sprayed, and you can insert your own jokes there, getting sprayed or misted for the second time by the Great Muda, which I thought was far more, I I loved the way he did it. It You really weren't expecting it whatsoever. When he grabs Missy as she's standing on the apron and he pulls her back and just misses her right in the face. Um, if you guys wonder what I'm talking about, the video is on our Twitter account at Wrestling Grenade. I tweeted it to Missy. I included her in there and, and, Miss, and Mr. Muda as well. The Great Muda has liked some of our tweets in the past <laughs> involving himself, but he's not really one to uh, interact. I'm guessing maybe a little a barrier there in the language. But Missy Hyatt is one to definitely get back to us. She's gotten back to us a few times now. And she's been very talky about the feud with Eddie Gilbert and the way uh, Missy and Eddie were treated or mistreated here in the second half of uh, 1989 in the NWA, she said that she really enjoyed, obviously, working with Muda, and uh, she posted a picture for us. She met the great Muda at an uh, autograph signing, and Muda gave her one of his Muda masks, the masks that he wore to the ring, and signed it for her. Uh, it showed his appreciation for you know, taking the miss twice for, her, for him in that storyline to help him get over so I thought that was really cool that she incorporated that into the thing and gave us even a, a picture with Muda 20 years later referencing this feud, which is really forgotten, never talking talked about whatsoever. And that's a huge deal that a, a female is getting sprayed with mist because, you you know, other than the heel Sherry taking an atomic drop or, or things like that in the, in the WWF, it was a huge deal to see a female getting sprayed by mist not once but twice here, you know, in the summer of 89 NWA. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the mist is huge and the way they was building it up, uh, how deadly and the mist was and just the mystique of it all. And to see a woman get it done to her twice, uh, it was definitely something you never saw. And, and it still, it has a lasting impact, even though they didn't really do anything with it per se, just seeing it and talking about it, it just makes you realize, man, that's huge. And, and it really did help Muda. I mean, he's crazy. He'll, he'll do it to anybody. He doesn't care. I just think Missy did a great job enhancing uh, Muda there with the, I wish she sold it better. Like I know we've talked about that uh, with the clash, like she got missed and comes out in the clash smiling, like nothing ever happened. Other than that, I felt it was very impactful, which is pretty cool. And, I, and obviously she was game. 
pretty sweet stuff. Yeah, and I also spoke to Missy uh, on Twitter, and she commented back, so you guys can go right now to at Wrestling Grenade and see the conversation. Not, it wasn't just privately held. I mean, Missy talks all about it right on right there on Twitter. I talked to her about Gilbert's uh, next heel turn. Uh, it looked like he was heading to turn on Sting there at Great American Bash, and then they just kind of nipped it in the bud and forgot all about it. And Missy basically blamed it all on politics, booking politics. Some of the guys, you know, uh, on the booking committee, uh, I'm assuming probably Jim Hurd. And she kind of alluded to Ric Flair once Ric Flair took over the book, which makes sense if you see what happens to, to Gilbert and Missy once Ric Flair takes over the book. But she, yeah, she blames that there. She also thought, and I think most wrestlers think this, that their storyline ended abruptly. She felt like Gilbert could have got more legs against Muda here. And them doing these angles here in August, it should have continued. Certainly, at least to the, the next Clash of the Champions. Unfortunately, it just seems to, to disappear, go away. Um, but she thought it, it should continue for a while. Then, you know, the blow-off being Gilbert jobbing to Muda set Muda up for Sting later in the fall. And, and then she did what we both have done in the past. She shit all over the Iron Man tournament idea. So, so that was pretty cool, too. <laughs> uh, she, she, gave, she was basically <laughs> fantasy booking the rest of the year. Missy's, you know, she doesn't get the credit she deserves in, in her knowledge, in her memory, in the history of the business, and just her mind. So it was really fascinating to, to talk with Missy back and forth, just that little bit there. Yeah, I, I think I mentioned it earlier. I mean, she cares about the business. She was a fan. That's how she got into the business. Well, so, you know, she well, got into the business <laughs> after the business got into her. <laughs> yeah, well, that's that's. That's neither here nor there, but I'm just saying, like, she, she went to the shows, and she I'm assuming she was there for other reasons, but she was also there because she was a fan of wrestling, and uh, once she got into it, you can clearly tell she has the mind for wrestling. She appreciates the wrestling, and she's a historian in, in her own sense, how much she remembers. It may just be oh, yeah. personal experiences and things like that, but somebody just tags her in a tweet talking about something from almost 30 years ago, or pretty much is 30 years ago. Yeah, like like it's uh, yesterday. Like yeah, it just happened yesterday. So yeah. I mean, she's clearly she clearly cares. She's not just one of those people that just got in the business to make a few bucks and get out of town. Yeah, there's a uh, lot of wrestlers that you ask them, you know, about their career, and they have no idea what the hell you're talking about, you know. And Missy yeah. certainly she has a great memory, and I, you know, I, kudos to her for that. And not just what she was doing, what everyone was doing around her. She has a great great uh, memory. So I, I just really appreciate. Jim Ross and Jim Cornette, now Missy Hyatt, uh, conversating with us and kind of opening up and letting a little more information out there. And she closed up by, you know, basically blaming the politics and basically squashing Eddie Gilbert's push, but also having Missy removed from television. She claims that she was removed from television in the fall. They told her she had put on too much weight. And to that, I say, get real. She, she put on weight where it matters, man. Right, <laughs> <laughs> right in those you know double Ds or whatever she has. I mean, she looked tremendous. I mean, she yeah, was a beautiful I, woman. Put on a little bit of weight. Who cares? I mean, she's still gorgeous. She's still better than. She's still hotter than probably ninety five percent of the population. I mean, Jesus. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, I, I guess just she just says it goes all back to politics. She didn't really believe that at the time either. She just felt like she was being punished for, you know, Eddie because they were together at the time, obviously. And so basically, yeah. you know, that's why she was written off TV while Eddie was relegated to doing jobs and, and teaming with Tommy Rich, which is the equation of doing jobs basically <laughs> by that by the <laughs> by the end of the year. So that's where yeah. we are as far as, you know, speaking with, the, you know, everyone this week. I just really appreciate all the great fans or listeners now, too, that have uh, been writing in, asking these questions, uh, communicating in the conversations with Missy, 
and Jim Cornette, they're really appreciating this too. So it's not just me and you, it's, it's the world that gets to read this and gets to learn from it. So that's the really cool part. Yeah, I agree a hundred percent, man. You can never know too much or too little. I mean, if you, if you want to learn, it's out there. You just got to know who to talk to. And hopefully we could be that bridge to some people learning something they never heard of or never knew about. And uh, I think that's what we're doing here with the grenade. And so before we get going with the uh, news, Steve, because we got news out the yin-yang, uh, we recently had a Thanksgiving free prize giveaway. We gave away three free prizes on Thanksgiving. And uh, I want to say congratulations to Chosen Taguchi 36 from Hawaii, who won the WWF Survivor Series 1990 poster. Congratulations out there to, to our fans in Hawaii. I also have to say congratulations to the Wrestling Time Machine podcast. Uh, they won the Razor Ramon autographed 8x10. Uh, there was a picture of Razor, obviously, at the top of the ladder, holding both Intercontinental belts, WrestleMania 10. So congratulations once again to the Wrestling Time Machine podcast. They are at W-R-E-S-T-L-T-I-M-M-A-C-H. And I'm only saying that once. But the Wrestling Time Machine, you guys can find them also on Twitter. And last but not least, the Ken Patera McDonald's pack. And I have to laugh every time I say that because I just think about what it entails. But the winner of the Kim Patera autograph, as well as a $10 McDonald's gift card, is at Yesterdayville. Mr. Yarber for uh, the Retro Rambler of the Retro Network. So congratulations to Mr. Yarber, the Wrestling Time Machine podcast, and Mr. Chosen Taguchi from Hawaii for your gifts here as part of the Thanksgiving free prize giveaway. And Steve, I know we got hopefully some Christmas giveaways coming up, and we'll talk more about that next on next week's episode. Yep, we're working on it. <laughs> the Wrestling Memory Grenade is proud to announce the launch of WrestleCopia brand and the WrestleCopia Podcast Network, which you can find over at www.wrestlecopia.com. That's WrestleCopia.com, WrestleCopia.com. You've probably heard me mention in passing all the way back to episode one of The Grenade, the WrestleCopia brand. You may be asking, what is WrestleCopia? The name derives from the words wrestle for wrestling and copia, which is defined as having plenty or an abundance of. It's an abundance of wrestling history over at WrestleCopia.com as the podcast network gets up and running with a variety of podcasts slated to launch over the course of the fall season. Everything from our show The Grenade to Monday Warfare, The Battles Within, an in-depth look and weekly breakdown of the entire Raw vs. Nitro War. The WrestleCopia News Network is a special feature podcast. We've done a couple pieces already in the Bullet Bob Armstrong special and more recently, What a Rush, a tribute to Road Warrior Animal Peace. You can expect more late-breaking news, timely discussions, and tributes to the fallen legends on future episodes of WCNN. We've also got other podcasts being prepped for their debuts this holiday season, including a territory-based show we like to call The Money and the Miles. There's an old saying in the world of professional wrestling that nothing in this business is real except the money made and the miles traveled. In this podcast, we discuss the territory era with shows focusing on everything from show reviews to yearly breakdowns to episodes focusing on some of the rare, lesser-known territories and outlaw promotions of yesteryear that remains an enigma. Stop on over to WrestleCopia.com for all the latest shows and follow us on Twitter at WrestleCopia. That's on Twitter at WrestleCopia for all the latest news and information on the podcast network. 
All right, guys. And uh, another another idea I just came up with. I, I pulled out my bins. Everybody thought I just had wrestling tapes, and we just reviewed 1989 NWA. And maybe I think some listeners are wondering where our scope begins, where our scope ends. My scope begins in the 1800s. Let me make let me make this clear. You know, we I have a territory based podcast launching here in the early part of next year, and that's really my bread and butter. Like it's killing me not to be able to have a podcast right now where I can't talk about and enjoy discussions of the territory era. And I, I love the NW89, don't get me wrong, and the WWF and everything else we're going to be covering here. But uh, I look forward to doing that. And that got me to reminiscing of other things. And I pulled out my, my bins of magazines. And I, I took a few pictures. I put them up on Twitter. I showed them to you, Steve, just some of the random goodies I have dating all the way back at least to the 1930s, some old ad clippings, newspaper clippings, magazines, things of that nature, programs, autographs. Hundreds, if not thousands, of magazines uh, between the bins and, and whatnot. So, I'm thinking starting—I don't know—in the next couple of weeks, I'm going to start start something I'd like to call Magazine Mondays, and uh, I'm just going to post a few pictures each week from some of the different magazines that that I flip through and I reminisce each week. And I think a lot of people are going to really enjoy them because, like I said, my my stuff goes all the way back to the 30s. And I know, you know, I, I stopped collecting magazines somewhere around the early to mid 90s. I'd say 93 was the last year I really, really was hardcore into collecting magazines, but it slowly went away. I, I got a few magazines in 94, 95, 96. So uh, just decades of, of old good stuff in the uh, magazines. And Steve, I know you have a plethora yourself. Yeah, I've been collecting magazines for quite a long time myself. I probably got. I know I almost have the complete run of WWF stuff, the Raws, the WWF magazine, going back to 84, um, SmackDown, almost all the programs. So, And I got my own PWIs, wrestling reviews, things like that. Got a bunch of that stuff. So I love magazines. I love going through them. I love looking at the pictures. I love reading the stories. It's, uh, it's, it's history in your hands, and it's always awesome to go reminisce a little bit and just remember the glory days of wrestling. And as we move on to the show, we still haven't conquered the VIP Jobber of the Month for July. So we're going to go back now, and we're going to take a look at just who is the VIP Jobber of the Month. For July of 1989, and really when it comes down to it, Steve, I think you can only look at two guys. One of those being Jerry Price, who's been in and out of the NWA for uh, most of 1989, off and on. (laughs) He might he might have gotten the trophy just based on one specific spot where the SST attempt to launch him in a backdrop. Uh, I don't know intentionally or not, but the way he takes it, they almost launch him out of the ring. Luckily for him, or maybe not so luckily for him, I'm not really sure. He does his best flying Walinda spot here as he takes the entire backdrop, lands on the top rope, the back of his thighs basically landing on the top rope, and he does a, a backflip back into the ring, just barely barely escaping taking uh probably bouncing his head off the apron and dying so yeah uh, i know i know you saw that spot before i did and so <laughs> you were like you got to see the spot cuz we'd already seen the lee scott spots which i'm going to get to in a minute uh, you were like you you got to see this this is like way worse than the lee scott you know b- bump or whatever yeah. and i agree physically it's far more dangerous uh but yeah. you know i, I had to l- i had to go back and, and put everything together and I watched Lee Scott try, you know, attempt after attempt to get, he got higher and higher. Just, just a nut dude. And just in general, all of the bumps Lee Scott took, I feel like the overall body of work 
in July of 1989, I think we have to go for the trifecta here. I think Lee Scott should once again be the VIP job of the month. A quarter of the year uh, in trophies going to Lee Scott here. That's my opinion. Now, I'm going to let you this month. You can override me if you really feel Jerry Price deserves a trophy. I, I'm all about giving him a participation trophy because we can do those things here in 2020. But I think Lee Scott, his entire body of work, not just the backdrops, but just all of his tremendous selling, coupled with the backdrops, especially the insane one in center stage, I think Lee Scott gets the nod here for me anyway. And I'll, I'll let you decide, though. I mean, he, he did, you know, he did the backdrop on one of the syndication shows, and then he decided to get back in the ring with the SST a second time in the month of July. So, I mean, he took it once and decided, I want some more. I'm going to go higher. So let's do it again. So in that sense, I definitely agree with you. He should be Jabber of the Month, but I'm with you 100%, man. Jerry Price should get a participation trophy. Uh, it, it, I almost feel inclined to like do a draw here. I mean, Jerry Price damn near got killed. It, it kind of reminds me that uh, I was watching the X Games and that Jake Brown on the big air on the skateboard. Uh, he lost his skateboard 50, 60 feet in the air. I swear to God, I was going to see somebody die on live TV. I was like, oh, man, he's dead. <laughs> There's no way he's surviving this. That's almost how I felt when I saw Jerry Price hit that hit that, that backdrop. I was like, oh, my God, he's going to go over the top rope and damn near get He's going to die. That's just the way it looked. Somehow he stayed in the ring. I have no idea how, but he did. Uh, he was a heavier guy, so that could have been it. Yeah, I, I was just like, holy shit, he's going to die. So kudos to Jerry Price. He took one hell of a bump. But the body of work is absolutely, it's Lee Scott. It's always Lee Scott. <laughs> and it was, you know, that's, uh, that's saying a lot too, because they started doing these tapings in Louisiana and in Texas and Lee Scott, he didn't make the trips. These were the local job guys. They started, uh, sadly, these were the local guys they were bringing. These guys didn't know what the hell they were doing, uh, the wow. last several weeks and going into these, these shows too, a little bit, we'll get back to the Lee Scott guys here. All the guys, you know, Mike Justice, Lee Scott, and all those guys here uh, as we get moving here. But, yeah, it's been a rough few weeks here in the NWA as far as the job guys go. And Jim Cornette even made a comment about that. I think it was on, I'm not sure if it was his podcast or what I was watching or listening to. But he mentioned, somebody asked him something about working the Texas trip, uh, doing the tapings down there. He shit all over the job guys down there. And he basically said what we said, or what you've certainly uh, hit home uh, repeatedly. They should have stayed in Georgia and the Carolinas. And, they, you know, they went outside, you know, of their little circle, their bubble, and this is what happens. And Cornette basically was saying they had no business working in Texas, you know, at all whatsoever. And then basically, like I theorized, they found some local job guys based on somebody Jody Hamilton, the assassin, knew probably. He knew somebody local, and he goes, hey, I need some of your job guys or, or you know, some of your trainees or whatever. And that's what we end up with here, and that's what you get when you do things like this. Yeah, you can definitely tell. I mean, they was cooking. Everybody was able to go in and do what they needed to do, and they didn't have to worry about it. And then all of a sudden, this Texas and the Louisiana trip happened, and the wheels fall off. I mean, these matches, just they just haven't had that same excitement for a squash match, I would say. I mean, it's just been very, very hit and miss, very boring. People just ending things because they know these dudes can't, they have no business being in the ring with them. I, I guess the only thing positive that came out of this Texas trip is Terry Funk being in his hometown fighting right. Scott Hall. <laughs> I mean, that's really it. Like, that was so entertaining just because of the crowd. But other than that. Yes, um, the uh, the boring. bedrock of uh, Amarillo, I believe, was uh, Terry Funk. I believe that's what he was referred to as versus uh, Big Scott Hall. 
So yeah, it was a yeah. fun time. <laughs> Scott Hall and Terry Funk and Amarillo. But we have to move on and we have to power on. But before we do that, once again, I have to congratulate you, Lee Scott. Three time, three time, three time. And Steve, I know you'd like to tell him welcome to the club, but he's been here for a while now. Dude, he's like the the greeter at the door for the shopper of the month. He he just stays there, so yeah. he's like the he's the VIP host of the of the club. <laughs> <laughs> On behalf of the Wrestling Memory Grenade and the Russell Copia brand, we are proud to announce our very own Patreon account. We encourage everyone to stop on over to patreon.com slash WrestleCopia and check out an amazing 14 tiers. And depending on your budget, we have everything from as little as a $1 tier to as much as a $100 tier. Get you all sorts of exciting offers. It really all depends on what offer you value the most. You can do anything from join Steve and I right here as co-hosts for an episode of The Grenade, all the way down to unedited versions of the show, early access to upcoming episodes, beat everyone else to the punch, see what we're saying before everyone else gets to hear it, Plus, my insanely detailed show notes, which I value ever so dearly. You can even pick the flick. And what that means is, if you subscribe to one of our You Pick the Flick tiers, you'll tell us, me and Steve, what show it is you want us to review. It can be a watch-along on the WWE Network, YouTube, Daily Motion. It can even be a live review of a rare show from my personal archive vault of videos at home. No promotion, no territory, no era is off-limits. You can request anything from your favorite WrestleMania to an episode of 1982 World Class to the 60-minute classic between Jack Briscoe and Dory Funk Jr. from 1970s All Japan. Hell, if you want to put us through the misery, we'll even pull a mystery science theater over here and watch Hell Comes to Frogtown starring Roddy Piper. You tell us what you want us to review, and we'll do our own little watch-along and do our best to entertain you guys and give you guys insight in the process. And it doesn't end there. There's a $5 tier, a Power Patron tier, all you have to do is subscribe $5 to our Patreon account where you, as the Patreon, get exclusive access to the Power Hour podcast that we release anywhere from two to four times per month with the potential for bonus episodes being added at any given time. It's unfiltered, uncensored, unedited. We say whatever we think, whatever we feel on just about any topic. We'll answer your questions, review recent pay-per-views. There's even a little segment we like to call Things Meltzer Said, where we pick apart and debate Things Meltzer Said. All of that, plus other random questions, opinions, and stories are shared here on the exclusive Power Hour podcast. Or, for only $2 more, you can subscribe to the $7 tier, the all-access tier, where for $2 more, not only do you gain access to the Power Hour podcast and everything on every lower tier, but you'll also have complete access to our entire full library of random show reviews and watch-alongs we've done and continue to do as a side project. We review everything from the Flair Steamboat 2 out of 3 fall match from Class 6, all the way down to the Halloween 1985 edition of Saturday Night's Main Event. It's a proverbial hodgepodge of randomness, as you never know what we'll review next. And it's exclusive to the all-access tier or any of the higher tiers over at patreon.com slash WrestleCopia. Check it out now. That address again is patreon.com slash WrestleCopia. That's Wrestle, C-O-P-I-A. And before we get moving on to the new week and all the news and, and notes for the middle of August, I found results for the only show we were missing last week when we did two more weeks of NWA TV last week, the final week of July, and then the weekend of August 4th. The only show we were missing was NWA Pro from those two weeks, and that was for August 5th, 1989, hosted by Caudill and, and Lance Russell. 
I did find complete results, detailed results online. So I do know that this, this footage has to be out there somewhere. So if any of you guys have NWA Pro for August 5th, 1989, please contact us, DM us, share the video. We'd love to get a look at this. Uh, some interesting stuff on the show. The sh I'm just going to run down the, the results very fast here. Show kicks off with uh, comments from referee Nick Patrick on the rules of the scientific wrestling match later. It's uh, match number one in the series of uh, a potential three between Mike Rotunda and Dr. Death. Nick Patrick states that the first man to break the rules would lose. So that's how it's basically given to us initially, is that this, you're telling me this match just continues until somebody cheats? There's no other way to win? That's how it's explained here anyway in week one. Now, as far as the action goes, it's the Steiners over Avalanche, so Avalanche returned, but you notice Mike Blackwell did not. So the Steiners over Avalanche and Colin Orsak, uh, who was also pretty rough job guy, uh, Dr. Death had to take it home with him in under a minute because that guy didn't know what he was doing last week. Uh, that match didn't even go two minutes. Rick Steiner over Orsak with the overhead belly-to-belly. -belly. Brian Pillman over Jack Victory in five minutes with the crossbody off the top after Shane Douglas came to ringside and tripped up Victory. Obviously, the dudes and the New Zealand militia are, for some odd reason, in a feud at the moment. The Midnight Express over Alex Porto and J.D. Meadows in just a minute and 13 seconds after a double goozle on Meadows, and I haven't seen that, them use, utilize that move here in 89 yet, so I'm wondering if that's uh, accurate. The SST over the Rich Cousins, Johnny and Davey Rich, in just two minutes, fought two with the splash on Davey Rich. The Skyscrapers defeat the Ding Dongs. In a minute and a half, with Dan Spivey scoring the pin with a double-team powerbomb on uh, maybe Big Dong, if Paulie Dangerously was commentating anyway. <laughs> now, that's not the last time the Skyscrapers take on the Ding Dongs, but it was the first time, and I've never actually seen that match. I'd, I'd be interested. Minute and a half, squash. And then the uh, episode of Pro concluded with match number one in the Scientific Wrestling Best of Three series. Mike Rotunda defeated Dr. Death Steve Williams by disqualification in about six and a half minutes when Dr. Death nailed Rotunda right in front of the referee with a closed fist. And we actually get to see like a 10-second clip of that as they go into match two or three here later on as we're discussing the next two weeks of TV. But it's uh, Rotunda up one to nothing after last week's match. And uh, it's, it's quite funny, the, the clip, because usually in a situation like this when a heel's taunting the face and the face clenches his fist, he so badly wants to hit that heel, but he knows he can't, and so eventually he doesn't. And it's really funny here because Rotunda kind of mugs at Dr. Death, mocks him, you can't hit me, and Dr. Death just clocks him right in the face, and it made me laugh. I enjoyed it. So it was a little bit different, and it was very Dr. Death-ish. So I enjoyed it anyway, and that's basically how Doc got disqualified in match number one. Yeah, and give him credit. He's playing off the fact that, okay, I, I can lose the first one, but I got two more matches to make it up. So he knew he had three matches total to win. So one doesn't necessarily count. It's kind of like that two out of three falls match where they maybe get DQ'd and they just beat the hell out of somebody with a chair to wear them out. Like I can give up one, but now I just got to win the next two, that type of deal. So it was smart, but it, yeah, it was pretty funny and a really cool spot. And it's definitely Doc. <laughs> it's Doc in a nutshell. So we ended last week's episode with a lot of cliffhangers, uh, three of them to be exact. I had to do a little research and look up some things, and I promised I'd come back this week with some answers. Well, I don't have complete answers to some of them, but I have better answers to some of them. Last week, we talked about the final night of the Bash Tour, uh, August 6th in the Omni. Dave Meltzer reported it was a sellout of 13,000 fans. Meanwhile, there's other arguing that it was 7,500 fans to this Omni card here, the final bash tour, uh, final night of the bash tour. 
I did a little more research. I got a few more results. I got a few more pieces of information. And from the best I can tell, it's looking like Dave Meltzer's numbers are more accurate than the 7,500. I really can't tell where the 7,500 actually comes from, which is why I'm uh, more eager to lean towards Meltzer as well. So it's looking like even if it didn't draw 13, the Omni did pretty close to a sellout. So I hope you're happy. I know you were really hoping. You were really hoping for the NWA there that night. You were really praying that they'd have a great night. Yeah, they deserve it. I mean, just watching the Bash pay-per-view, they busted their ass. And they it was a lot of those matches were rematches or whatever the case may be at the Omni. So, And that hard sell on Saturday night, if they didn't get anywhere close to a sellout, I would have been, as an owner or booker or whatever it is I was at the NWA, I would be devastated because they did every possible trick they could do to have a good show. And if it didn't work out, that would have been bad. That would have been terrible. So I'm glad they did get a good night out of the Omni there. And on that Omni card, one of the matches that was uh, booked uh, to take place was the for the vacant TV title between Sting and the Great Muda in a Dragon Shy match, the Kendo Stick match. And then when we went to the results for the August 6th Omni show, we learned that the match didn't take place. It wound up in a, being a tag team Dragon Shy gimmick match with Muda teaming with Kevin Sullivan and whatnot. And Sting was nowhere to be found on the card, so we wondered what happened there. Why was it changed? Was it changed because they're just trying to prolong things was it changed because there was an injury what happened here i can't answer exactly what happened i can confirm that sting wrestled the night before at the keel uh, on august 5th and he's wrestling directly after the omni show as well so it's looking like they kept him off the show so you weren't wondering why we weren't getting the match that was advertised and instead they book the sting versus muda match to return to the omni on September 3rd, in a no-DQ match, no-DQ, no-time-limit match, a definitive winner would be decided a new TV champion will be crowned. So they basically postponed that TV title match for a later date and just uh, basically rearranged the the final Bash Night card, gave Muda a different match on the card and kept Sting off the show. It's unfortunate, but that's just how things go sometimes, I suppose. Yeah, it makes you just wonder if they felt like the card was strong enough that they didn't want Sting and Muda to be an afterthought and let's try to sell a show based off of that big match. We can get a little bit more TV under it or something like that. So it makes sense. It does suck though. Uh, I know Meltzer has a, has an issue with all the people, you know, card subject to change for really no reason. I know he bitches about that all the time, how right. companies use that. And it kind of feels like that's what they did here. Let's put it on there and then change it when we get there. But at the same time, it's smart. So I get it. Yeah, I can't complain as much here as I could. Like you said, man, that, that's a hell of a stacked card with flair and funk. And I, I'm not making excuses. I mean, it's still crummy when you uh, build something up like that. But I get what they were going for here. Maybe they were looking for another month of uh, drawing Sting and Muda. They, because they did this all along the house show tour. Sting versus Muda and these vacant TV title matches that kept ending in a disqualification. So it, it remained vacant. And they did that from house show to house show. Basically everybody got that TV title match and then they wouldn't get a finish t- until the Omni here, uh, September 3rd upcoming. So I, I get what they did. And like you said, it was a pretty strong card overall flair and funk, the war games that should have sold it alone. Luger and Rick Steiner yeah. underneath that. Yeah. So it's a pretty, yeah, pretty Luger big show. Rick. Yeah. It's stacked. And the big news that we closed last week's episode with, it's now August, 1989. And the biggest news of all is that there's a new booker in town. And believe it or not, his name is Ric Flair. 
Ric Flair, the nature boy himself, the world heavyweight champion, takes over the duties of the ultimate decision maker. And basically how that comes about is we both know Ric Flair can be temperamental. Uh, we've seen him break down and cry on a number of occasions. Uh, he, get, he can get equally as mad, uh, <laughs> you know, basically if you push the right buttons. Basically what the situation was here is Flair was the champion. He knew ratings were in the toilet. Uh, the Bash Tour was mostly abysmal. We, we've, we've seen that as we documented the, the drawing <laughs> from house show to house show. Some of the, even the shows were even canceled because of the lo- low ticket sales. Uh, but basically house shows in general were a record low. Ratings were a record low. Everything was just bottomed out, which, again, really sucks because the talent was there. The storylines were there. Everything was going you know, well. Maybe the promotion uh, of these shows wasn't very hot. The, the promotion of the house shows, the pr- promotion of the TV wasn't the best. But outside of that, I thought, you know, they really deserve more than they're getting right now. And so does Ric Flair. Yeah. He feels he can turn this around. And I guess the, uh, the straw that broke the camel's back was, and I think this goes back. I, don't, I can't pinpoint when it was, but I, I believe it to be, do you remember last week's episode where we closed the show with the Ric Flair and Sting versus uh, Funk and Muda brawl around center stage. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Flair, Flair took the fight to the floor and they kind of brawled out of the camera and they brawled out of the lights. And I guess Jim Hurd, you know, had a snide comment that uh, Flair overheard something along the lines of multiple times world champion. You'd think this guy would know to wrestle inside the lights, you know, basically shitting on Ric Flair for not being professional, not understanding the production of how things are, you know, how to basically how to work, how to stay on the camera. And uh, I guess, you know, Flair was probably already not happy. And sometimes it only takes, you know, a silly comment like that to just, you know, make somebody snap. And uh, I guess Flair hears a comment like that. That was all it took. This is based on Jim Hurd and Conrad Thompson, who was repeating Ric Flair. So both of them confirmed this is how things went down. And Flair storms off. I quit. I'm done. Fuck you. I'm leaving. I'm done. And he leaves. Leaves the, leaves the building. Leaves the NWA. He's gone for a few minutes. Uh, Jim Hurd <laughs> trace, tracks him down, finds him, wines and dines him and some big fancy lunch, and basically knows that in order to keep Ric Flair, he has to give him whatever he wants. And he agrees. Ric Flair basically says, give me the book. I want the book. I want to be the ultimate decision maker. I want to control the creative. It's still a committee, but Ric Flair is in charge. Make no mistake. There's nobody there to override him. He's the final, he's the final say at this point. And that's basically how it goes down is that Ric Flair just it took one last comment. And then just with everything else going wrong in the NWA, Flair had had it. He had already wanted to try to take over uh, the book and see if he could turn things around. He felt he could do a better job than whatever was going on right now. He couldn't do any worse as far as ratings go anyway. And it took that tantrum, and he got what he wanted out of it, and he takes over the book here. Ric Flair, the ultimate decision maker, so to speak. Yeah, from uh, when I went through 89, I remember it picking up really, really, really hot towards the end of the year, and I'm, I'm assuming that's when Flair took over. And I, I, you can just assume based off of everything that he did that he knew he had a great, he, he obviously has a great mind for the business and he knows what the NWA fan wants probably better than anybody. I mean, he's always had that, that crowd in the palm of his hand. Hell, he probably still does today. He's put enough of them in the building. You can go out there and cut a promo at 85 or however old he is saying he's going to steal your woman and all that shit. And it would still get a pop. I, I feel like, this is the opportunity that he needed. 
And like you said, it couldn't get any worse than what was already happening. It just this Jim Hurd guy, <laughs> it, it, like he he doesn't do a lot, but the things that he does do or makes decisions on, he clearly doesn't know what he's doing, or has any business being in that position. And I, I know it becomes a bigger issue later on, and not necessarily right now. But the the writing's on the wall already for me. You can just clearly tell this is not going to work out with him. So it's unfortunate it took as long as it did to get him out of there. I, I'm intrigued to see this again, see how it turns out. But uh, uh, it's pretty cool. It's something different. And, um, I mean, what else can you say? It's Ric Flair writing his own wrestling comic. <laughs> it's it's going to work out. Not that I need to promote it or anything, but I, I really do recommend anybody who has the extra cash, not only should you head over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash WrestleCopia, listen to the Power Hour podcast, listen to all of our watch-alongs in the watch-along series, but Conrad Thompson did an uh, interview with Jim Hurd recently, and that's where I got some, some of this information from. It was very eye-opening. He, he squashes some of the rumors, and they make sense. It's a very humble man. I believe he's 88 years old now. So it's a, it's a little bit of a slow grind to get some answers out of him. Uh, he, he has a good memory. Don't get me wrong for his age. It's just, you know, when you get to be that age, you kind of talk a little slower. Uh, it's also Conrad doing the questioning. So he has his series of questions that interest him. And that's basically what we're going to get answers to there. It's maybe not everything I would have asked Jim Hurd, but it's enough that it's, uh, it's intriguing. And I thought it was uh, it was well enough. I know Jim Ross put it over pretty good. Uh, Jim Ross really enjoyed it anyway. I thought it was okay. I would have liked to have heard a little more, heard a little more. But, you know, <laughs> I, I think it went something like, you know, an hour and 45 minutes or something like that, if I'm not mistaken. So uh, at that age, I'm sure that's probably about as much as we were going to get at that point in time. But just good stuff. And yeah. uh, part of it was, you know, this story. This was the story. And Conrad tells Ric Flair's side of the story to kick it off. And Jim Hurt basically just goes, yep, yep, that's exactly what happened. I sure did. I took him out to, he. I think he named maybe even the restaurant. I don't remember. But Jim Hurt basically just agreed. So there wasn't like two sides of the story that were conflicting. Uh, most of the stories, whatever version Ric Flair told Conrad that Conrad repeated to Jim Hurt, Jim Hurt basically agreed 100%. Yep, that's how it happened. Now, no matter who looked like the asshole at the end of the, the story, yeah, that's how it happened. So not a lot of con- conflict there, which was really cool. You know it's true at that point. If if they're getting, if he's probably just getting that information right then, and he's like, "Yeah, that's how it went down." I mean, that's that's how it went down. Man. And I will say, like, I know Meltzer had a big issue with Ric Flair. I don't know if it was a big issue. I just remember reading it that he was concerned with Ric Flair having the book because of what the Ric Flair character has to be as far as the world champion. He has a lifestyle to uptake to keep up with. He has promos you know advertisements everything that he has to do with being the nwa world champion doesn't give you a lot of time to focus on writing tv and doing house show bookings and things like that it's too much for one person to handle and especially when rick flair is rick flair i mean he's one of those guys that he has a reputation to uphold and how do you split that time so the burnout and things like that is kind of what you really the only thing you have to worry about here with him taking over the book and there's uh, more news going on in the NWA is it's the next wave of talent coming into the company and some of the supplemental uh, talent, uh, pretty high-end job guys, jobber to the stars, if you will. Uh, first, it's going to be the State Patrol, the team of uh, Sergeant Buddy Lee Parker and Lieutenant James Earl Wright. James Earl Wright had been in Georgia Championship Wrestling and even on Crockett, 
on TBS in years past is uh, Dale Vesey. He really stuck out because he was probably one of the job guys that actually uh, took the medicine in the ass, if you will, the, the old steroid <laughs> shot. Uh, he was a pretty jacked up job guy, was Dale Vesey, and he returns here in the next week or so. Buddy Lee Parker, you guys might know, is uh, Dwayne Bruce, the guy who almost died from a pest, press slam to the floor from Sid Vicious. So I guess this is their... Uh, the reward for Daniel yes. dying. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> well, thanks. Thanks. You didn't sue us. So, you know, we'll we'll, uh, we'll give you a gimmick. You can get a gimmick. You, like the WWF has the Brooklyn Brawler. Now we have the State Patrol is basically what, what goes on here with this. But they do get a few wins here early on in their uh, NWA career. Yeah, Earl, James O'Reilly looks pretty awesome. Uh, you can tell he's on the gas, but he looks pretty good. Yeah, and, he'd been uh, around the block for quite a few years by this point, too. I mean, he'd been a job guy for a long time, but in the lower-end territories, the southern territories that were you know, starting to fade away, he would get pushes. He worked in a tag team. He knew his way around the ring. He was certainly a solid hand, to say the least. He knew what he was doing. And it's always good to bring these guys in. That way, when you go to Texas and shit, you have your own jobbers. <laughs> Just have him there, you know? My yeah. goodness. Another guy heading in is the Cuban assassin, Fidel Sierra, future Barrio brother in the WCW. Had a lot of gimmicks in Portland. Usually on top in Portland is the Top Gun is a baby face. Uh, yeah, he, he did a lot of mass gimmicks in, in Portland and worked in Florida quite a bit, did a mass gimmick down there. Uh, but he's been all over uh, for a very long time. Worked the uh, the old Mid-Atlantic tapings. If you watch the uh, go to the WWE Network, watch the... 1981, 82, probably maybe even 83 TV tapings. He's all over those as uh, David Patterson. So he's been around the block for a very long time and is, uh, is about as solid as it gets as an enhancement worker. Maybe not the most entertaining, but when you get him in the ring, you, you know he's, he knows what he's doing anyway. Some of the bigger names headed in are Oliver Humperdinck headed back to the NWA. We haven't seen him since Bigelow left in the beginning of the year. Oliver Humperdinck reportedly coming back in to take over Paul E's job as manager of the SST. It appeared, based on some of the stuff we've been watching, that the SST, there's their note out there, getting ready to split from Paul e dangerously, but it almost felt like they might have been teasing a, a babyface turn for the SST here, but it's just not to be with a gimmick like this. So uh, Humperdinck rumored to be coming in to manage the SST. Uh, we learned that Tom Zink was uh, on his way in. He'll be in by September, which is true. The initial plan was for him to come in under a mask as Mr. Z, but uh, they dropped that gimmick and he'll be coming in again uh, instead as the Z man. What do you think about Mr. Z? How do you think that would have got over? Uh, sounds terrible. <laughs> <laughs> I'm assuming somebody thought this was a good idea. And then, they looked at Tom Zink and like, oh, that dude has a decent looking face. There's no need, need to put it under a mask. I mean, that's going to attract the women. Yeah, that's um, confusing. <laughs> things like that. So they, they probably thought otherwise, and it's probably a good idea. I'm not a huge fan of Tom Zink, but he was solid. I mean, he wasn't terrible at all in the ring. No, I actually was a big, as a kid, I was a huge fan of Tom Zink in the WCW. I didn't really care for the Can-Am connection, even though they were more over seemingly than strike force i still can't explain that but i was a big fan of tom Zink in, in 89 90 91 honestly all the way into 92 working with with pillman at a super brawl yeah i was just always a z-man fan except for that little run with johnny gunn that didn't that didn't work so well with me but that was later on in the bill watts era so yeah the z-man's coming in that's that's always a good hand to have on your show brad armstrong on his way in and i don't know i think he's in and out quite a bit here 
Uh, he's not full-time, I don't think, yet in 89. But I, I do know he's coming in. He's going to wrestle Ric Flair. He's going to work some other pretty cool names early on in his uh, return to the NWA. So always good to have Brad Armstrong on your roster. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, he's he's definitely entertaining, and he, he's a great hand. He knows how to work. You don't have to worry about him at all. It's one of those things that the less worries you have, the better off you are, and he's definitely going to help that. Yeah, from this era, easily one of my top five guys to watch him, Barry Windham, guys like that just were so flawless and so natural in the ring. He was smooth like butter, man. Love me some Brad Armstrong, always did. And lastly, reportedly coming in is Dick Slater, and we know that to be true as well. He'll be coming in as part of the JTEX Corporation. Spoiler alert, you guys don't know what JTEX is yet, or at least if you didn't know much about 89 to begin with, you don't know what JTEX is yet. We'll be getting to that very soon, but Dick Slater coming in basically is going to be managed by Gary Hart. Basically, Dick Slater just a Terry Funk ripoff at this point in his career. Uh, Slater early on was an amazing wrestler and uh, just a hell of a talent. I really enjoyed me some... uh, Late 70s, early, mid-80s, Dick Slater. Here by the end of the 80s, he's uh, working the Terry Funk gimmick, and it's going to be interesting to see him and Terry out there together at the same time, doing basically two Terry Funks out there at the same time. What's better than one Terry Funk? Two Terry Funks, right? Well, we'll have to, we'll have to wait and see about that. <laughs> yeah, we'll find out. There's a new faction coming in. They're going to rival the Four Horsemen, I believe. It's the uh, trio of the Iron Sheik, Ron Simmons, and the Cuban Assassin. Talk about a hodgepodge of shit. Terrible. Poor Ron Simmons. And sometimes we like to play a game over on the Power Hour podcast called Things Meltzer Said. And I think we have to do that right here and right now. And we talk about narratives that Dave uh, spins he put on things that maybe that some were truths, some were half-truths, some were complete lies even if he didn't realize they were lies maybe somebody bullshitted him and you know he he just went with the story and i have to question i have to call in the question i have to call bullshit on you know honestly to the narrative that david put out there that ron simmons and clearly some shit went down i'm not arguing that because simmons got taken off tv and everything but he had turned down the idea of teaming with butch reed butch reed uh, an established uh, former main eventer in mid-south and and florida it, it, he had just come off the WWF a year ago. He turned on Timmy with Butchery being managed by Teddy Long, who's been doing a damn fine job as a manager, at least with the skyscrapers, maybe not so much Norman, in order to uh, basically he quit the company or he was fired or, or sent home anyway because he reportedly turned this down. I'm not questioning if any of that happened. I'm just questioning how he had the capability of turning that down, but when they let him back on TV... He was okay with this. I'm not going to team with Butch Reed, and I'm not going to be managed by Teddy Long, but yeah, I'll come back and and let the Iron Sheik manage me and team up with the Cuban Assassin and do jobs. Can you explain this one for, like, what are your thoughts on this whole thing? Is Dave full of shit? I mean, what's going on? I can't explain that to you. It makes absolutely no sense. I mean, Ron Simmons at this point hasn't had a break in the business, it seems like. Uh, He's been a jobber ever since he's been in the NWA this year uh, in 89. Right. So they're they're coming to you and saying, hey, I, I'm going to give you a tag team with Butch Reed and Teddy Long. And at that point, I'm just thinking, I don't give a shit what you call me. I'll take it. It's better than what I've been doing. So you're going to turn that down. Something that makes sense, something that works. I mean, we'll see how it goes. You're going to turn that down, but you're not going to turn down the Iron Sheik and the Cuban Assassin, which makes absolutely no sense at all. I don't know what the threat, the common thread here is. 
I don't know why Ron Simmons would even give Iron Sheik the time of day. It just makes absolutely no sense. If he did nothing after he turned down the editing experience, it makes sense. Okay, maybe he did turn it down. He didn't like the way it was going, things like that. But then he can't turn around and turn this down. The only other thing I can think of that makes somewhat sense is maybe he's like, okay, I already turned down one thing. If I turn down another thing, they're just going to give up on me or not even give me anything at all. So he already played that card. and He can't necessarily do it again because then he's hard to deal with or hard to work with. And he's never going to get anything. So it's like, damn. It's like, damn, Steve, damn. (laughs) Yeah, damn. That's probably where it came from. It's like he chose door number three when he should have took door number one, but he actually knew I was behind the doors. Um, it doesn't make any sense at all. Yeah, that, I mean, I guess that's really the only conclusion you can come to if you want to believe Demeltz anyway, that, that he really did turn down the initial offer of butchery. Maybe he thought if he said no, that they would just give him something else to do. Instead, they sent him home. And, <laughs> and he was back within a month on TV, uh, basically doing a complete uh, jobber role. Yeah. doing three minute jobs to guys and which is just crazy when you look at his body his physique and he's he's not a jobber uh but that was wow. basically there was no doubt that was punishment and uh obviously he realized that and I, I think he yeah i think you're you, you might be right he might be just trying to be the team player here because it doesn't take long before he he's not so uh anti-teaming with butcherite here in the near future so no <laughs> you know just put him under a hood with a woman and let's go and speaking of Butch Reed, there's rumors of him returning. Remember, he had been suspended for unbeknownst reasons. I still don't know what happened with that. Reed was just starting to find that, that niche again, just starting to come out of his shell. His matches were picking up. They weren't as slow and methodical. Uh, he'd been, you know, been there about six months, and then out of nowhere, boom, he's gone just in time for the Great American Bash. So misses a big payday there, misses the entire tour, but he's rumored to be coming back in, which we know eventually does happen. And right now, at this point, it's rumored that he's going to come back in and he's going to be teaming with either Mike Rotunda or Kevin Sullivan. We know that never happens, and I really can't see that working out well either way. Yeah, I'm not seeing that at all. What the hell are they doing? Are they just throwing names on a dartboard <laughs> and the first two they get hit are tag teams? Is it well, tag team? You know, they always align Kevin Sullivan. Not that Sullivan himself needed a partner or, or someone to play off of, but they always you know, gave Sullivan a, a little faction or a partner, things like that. Maybe they thought Butch Reed could use it. I don't know. And then maybe they thought Mike Rotunda could use Butch Reed. Uh, Mike Rotunda certainly needs something at this point moving forward. Uh, he's locked in with Dr. Death for the moment, but beyond that, man, you know, <laughs> the ship's going to sail, so yeah, to speak, for, yeah. for Mike Rotunda uh, fairly soon. Sullivan gives himself stables. He's always <laughs> seems like he's always on the booking committee, so he, he's giving himself this shit. It ain't, it ain't somebody else. Tryouts at this time include the future Nails, Kevin Kelly, with a tryout here in the NWA, and he was so bad, apparently, that he couldn't even make it in the NWA here in 89. Uh, Also, the uh, future Uganda, if you remember uh, Uganda from, uh, what was that, ECW when he was Uganda, right? Uh, The the Kamala number 2, the Botswana beast Ben Peacock, does a tryout here. He winds up popping up, I think, in 92 for a one-off job. Uh, on an episode of WCW. Do you remember Do you remember that match? No. <laughs> it was at the height of the Kamala Undertaker feud. And so they bring him in. Have you seen him? You've seen him, though. Kamala 2, Uganda, I'm assuming. Yeah. yeah he's a, basically yeah, yeah. a Kamala ripoff or, or whatever. Basically, he's a fatter Kamala is, is what yeah. he is. And Bill Watts brings him in during the height of the Undertaker-Kamala feud in 92. 
just for a one-shot deal so that the casual fan assumes this is Kamala to do a job to, you want to guess who he did a job to? Bill Watts booking? I, I got nothing for you, man. <laughs> Eric Watts. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Eric Watts. Yeah, just uh, Eric Watts was. I, th- I think that's when he was prepping for his match with Arn Anderson. He was prepping for his match with somebody, but they were getting that STF over, and yeah, so they brought Uganda in just for that one show <laughs> to do the job, so that everybody kind of the casual fan thought that Kamala's doing jobs over here to Eric Watts. Meanwhile, he's feuding with the Undertaker in the WWF, so Eric Watts must be as cool as the Undertaker, I guess. That was the thought process. <laughs> you got to give it to the Cowboy man. He was determined to get his kid over. He's determined to. I mean, that's smart. To be honest with you, that that's smart booking. I mean, it could have been obviously somebody better than Eric Watts, but uh, right. That's pretty. That's pretty damn intelligent. That's, that's yeah, like that's... next level thinking outside the box. Let's ruin their product with our own match here, and hopefully they don't understand the difference that there's two different guys. So right. um, that's pretty smart. Again, just wish it was somebody better in the ring. Chris Cruz. Gets a tryout as an announcer here on August 14th TV tapings. We will learn that Cruz does get hired here shortly thereafter, uh, for better or for worse. Uh, everybody has their own opinion on Chris Cruz. And there's discussions going on right now with uh, both John Nord, who for some reason turns down the NWA and winds up in the AWA as UConn John Nord teaming with Scott Norton. Do you remember? Do you know Scott Norton's original gimmick, what his nickname was? No, no, I don't. Okay. okay. You're going to, when you look this up afterwards, you're, you're going to laugh your ass off that Scott Norton would even agree that John Norton, they were lumberjacks. They dressed like lumberjacks. So obviously they had to wear cut off flannel shirts and, uh, it was Yukon John Nord with a big furry hat and Scott flapjack Norton. He was named after pancakes. <laughs> and, yeah. Why the hell did Scott Norton agree to this? And uh, that that right there, my friend, is just one of the many, many reasons why the AWA would be out of business within the next year. So here, here, let's just let's just circle <laughs> around here. Scott Norton will agree to that, but Ron Simmons is turning down the Ebony Experience. That's wrestling for you. Yeah, I, I'm I'm just assuming that AWA was in Norton's hometown, so he didn't have to go very far. He probably got a little. Cush deal for he was a rookie, you know. I mean, he'd been arm wrestling champion and certainly one of the strongest guys around, but he hadn't done nothing in wrestling, and so I guess you got to start somewhere. And yeah, Not Scott Flapjack Norton, I suppose. But yeah, discussions with John Nord and uh, the future Berserker, also for those curious, and then also discussions going on right now with Nikita Koloff. Obviously, both of these fall through. Uh, Nikita, we won't see back in the NWA for at least till 1991. And John Nord doesn't pop up until the tail end of the 90s when he's wearing those awesome T-shirts with random sayings on them. Uh, I loved him as he came out on those syndicated shows. And you had to read the beginning of the story in the front of his shirt and then read the punchline on the back. Excellent gimmick by John Nord <laughs> following the Berserker. That's a, a story for a different day. But I just I always was a fan of John Nord because he never took the business seriously. He was like a big kid. He didn't give a shit. If you fired him, he didn't give a shit. If you threatened him, you were going to fire him. He'd, he'd purposely do whatever the hell you told him not to do. Uh, that's why he didn't stick around too long anywhere or get pushed to the you know highest level because you couldn't trust him to follow orders. <laughs> and it wasn't because he was like an ass and he you know was a dickhead. It's just he didn't care. This was fun. That's all it was because 
he could go back to Minnesota and work at his family's car dealership, so, which is what he did. So I, he didn't really care. He had that to fall back on, and so he just always was just out there to have fun and beat people up. Good old John Nord. He was awesome. Ding dong. The ding dongs are done. Cleveland, Ohio, August 15th TV taping. We haven't got to the match yet, but just know that the ding dongs are done. They are murdered and they are neutered at the Cleveland, Ohio taping on August 15th. And I can't wait to get to that match. That's going to be in a later episode of the grenade as they take on the skyscrapers one more time. And for the final time, (laughs) good shit. And so we've been dealing with Tommy Edwards as the director, producer, whatever the, the head of the cameras and whatnot. Keith Mitchell is reportedly going to come in and take over. Of course, Keith, Keith Mitchell has a lot of experience in the wrestling, handling this type of production. So uh, things are going to change, and he's going to be coming in to take over that very, very soon here. I don't think that's a Ric Flair thing. I, I'm assuming that's a Jim Hurd thing. Ric Flair wouldn't really have any control over something like that or probably care one way or the other, I would imagine. So we'll see. Probably, we're going to have to start looking for changes in the product as far as the, the cameras go and things like that uh, here in the upcoming weeks. Probably no more shots of women in the crowd. And so we're like an hour into this show because I knew there was so much news. And coupled with all of the Twitter talk and the Ric Flair story and just covering some of the stuff in the past. So we're an hour into the show and we're just now done with the news. So I'm going to change things up here if it's okay with you, Steve. And let's do one week of TV this week, August 12th, the weekend of August 12th. And then we can do the 19th and the 26th and then the second and then uh, what would that be? The ninth. So basically if we do the 12th, just do the 12th this week, we'll have two shows with two more weeks each. And then we move right into the clash. That way we don't have a hybrid show where we do an hour of TV and then the clash as well together. Is that cool with you? Or do you want to just keep rolling? That sounds good to me, man. I mean, when you have a lot of news like that, you want to just not just get to it. You kind of want to have the discussion. So, um, yeah, this is what the grenade is, man. News yeah. and shows. We got to do them both. So, yeah, I think I'm I got about four. I think I got about 40 minutes into the news and I'm looking down and I see how far yeah. we are. And I'm like, yeah, dude, this that's why I didn't really want to cut the news short. I really want to discuss the news because I kind of made my mind up at that point that maybe we just do a week of TV and then we we kill the next two weeks of, of the grenade with two weeks each, which, like I said, would be the 19th and the 26th of August. And then the first two weeks of September will be the following episode of the grenade. And then three weeks from now will be the next clash of the champions watch along. Yeah. I texted my friend. I was like, man, we're 50 minutes in and haven't even talked about the the shows yet. <laughs> so um, he's a fan of the grenade. So uh, I was giving him a little heads up there, but um, it's just the way it goes sometimes. But yeah, I'm all for it, man. We can get, let's get to it. Yeah. So hello to you. Steve's friend, a fan of the show. <laughs> Thanks for listening. And uh, if you guys don't remember, this week the Power Hour is on Saturday night at 8.05. So, instead of kicking things off with the Power Hour this week, we're going to kick things off with NWA Pro for August 12, 1989. Still taped at Baton Rouge. We're finally finishing up, thank God, that Texas-Louisiana round of of TV taping. So, this should nip it in the bud. We should be done here, hopefully, I I believe, after this episode. I'm hoping. I'm not not 100% sure, but I, I believe so. And uh, once again, it's uh, Bob Cotto and Lance Russell hosting. Show kicks off with New Zealand Militia taking on the Dynamic Dudes. Match is very, very short. Dudes dominate most of the couple minutes that, that the match goes on. 
Shane Douglas finally makes a tag to Johnny Ace. Ace comes in with an O'Connor roll on Rip Morgan into the ropes. And Jack Victory busts Johnny Ace in the jaw with the canteen. And believe it or not, the New Zealand militia beat the dynamic dudes in 2 minutes and 36 seconds. And this entire match was put together to write Johnny Ace off of TV. They sell it as the canteen shot to the face is what fractured Johnny Ace's jaw. In fact, we had talked about that during the watch-along, the Great American Bash watch-along. Ace actually had already had the uh, the jaw injury going in to the pay-per-view. So this was just a way on TV to write him out for a few weeks to sell the, the broken jaw. I just hate the fact that they use the New Zealand militia to get this over. I mean, but it is the dynamic dude, so... I mean, why why not waste the militia on them? I mean, they're not going anywhere fast. So I, I thought it was a creative way. I mean, they've been hitting people with the canteen uh, since they pretty much debuted, and nobody's been taken out with it, but they got him pretty snug, according to the story they're trying to tell. But, yeah, it makes sense. It's easy, Like you said, easy way to get Ace off the TV there for a couple a couple weeks to heal. Yeah, I just I don't understand the logic of incorporating the militia into this. They, they're not really being pushed at this point, or maybe they are now. But they weren't prior to this, so I just think it would have made more sense if they just had Sid and Dan Spivey beat the living snot out of them for two minutes. That would have been far more entertaining for me, anyway. <laughs> I'm with you there. <laughs> we get a promo from Mike Rotunda, and those are never entertaining. Uh, he no. says, Dr. Death wanted the two out of three falls scenario in their scientific wrestling battle. Mike Rotunda already has one victory. That was the disqualification we talked about earlier. And he'll get his second one today here on the Pro, a clean sweep. Over Doc, he blames Dr. Death for costing them the World Tag Team titles earlier in the year. He said that the Doc took money out of Mike Rotunda's pocket. And Captain Mike is better than Dr. Death as a scientific wrestler. So Mike says he's better than Dr. Death in the ring. And now he just needs to get that promo work down, I guess. But yeah, do you think Mike's going to take two in a row? This is two out of three series. I mean, are we serious here? I think everybody's expecting Doc to win this one. Yeah, everybody knows this is going three, so it kind of takes away some of that excitement to see the match. I was curious to see how they got there because, remember, we got a DQ in the first match, so the finish of this one's very, very interesting when we get to it. (laughs) It's something. It's definitely something. Lex Luger promo time. He's not just the U.S. champion. He's now the number one contender with Steamboat gone out of the company. Luger says he will take on all challengers. He name drops the Steiners, Tommy Rich, he runs down Tommy Rich as a hillbilly, essentially, and Lex says he's numero uno, baby. Yeah, he's switching it up a little bit. I mean, he got what he wanted. He wanted to be the number one contender. He's already the U.S. champion, so Lex Luger is uh, happy with the way things are right now. I don't know if this ring announcer is going into business for himself, but the next match sees Norman the Lunatic taking on Flying Brian, and the ring announcer announces Norman as being from the Teddy Long Connection. So I'm hoping that was just a uh, ring announcer uh, going into business for himself, and that wasn't an actual idea had by the uh, booking committee, the Teddy Long Connection. Yeah, that's terrible. <laughs> you got to do better than that if you're going to give somebody a name. Uh, like you mentioned earlier, the JTEX Corporation, I, I really like that name. It sounds like something that you would hear in an action movie, like uh, he works for the JTEX Corporation or something like that, the head honcho type guy. Yeah, the Teddy Long Connection, that just sounds terrible. <laughs> So we get Norman taking on Brian Pillman, two standouts in Calgary Stampede Wrestling. Norman had tremendous matches with Owen Hart. I think you can find a few of them online. I think Meltzer's even credited him as being potential match of the year type candidates. I've seen a couple of them. I thought they were really well. Obviously, obviously Owen did a lot of the, the work, but uh, Norman as Muck and Sing there in Stampede was uh, really, really good. 
very fast for his size, and they were really good matches. And Brian Pillman, obviously, I don't even have to mention why he he stands out here in this match with, with Norm the Lunatic. In fact, he basically replaces Owen Hart's spot almost identically uh, as far as uh, ability goes anyway. Yeah, I've heard the, the stories of the matches between Owen and Mocking Singh. I've never really seen one. But you can definitely you can kind of see it here, what Norman can do when he's in there with a guy like Pillman. Like you said, he's light on his feet. He can move. He's fast. He can definitely sell. Uh, the problem is the Norman gimmick kind of hinders him uh, with what he's able to do as far as selling, so to speak, because he's crazy. He probably doesn't feel any pain. That's kind of what they're going for here. And uh, it can hinder him a little bit, but this match is pretty entertaining. And as the match gets going, Norman dominates a Karachi crunch early on, but Norman keeps forgetting the pin. He keeps laying on his back and doing this really creepy laugh. And I don't mean like creepy evil. I mean like just really creepy pedophile. I I, I don't Norman's just not a very good actor. Like, you know, remember, you, if you remember when he was turning crazy, like, nah, nah, yeah. and now here he is laying on his back, laughing repeatedly throughout this match. It's something new. It's something he hadn't been doing prior to this. He misses a second Karachi crunch and Brian Pillman slams the big guy. And if you remember back to the episodes where we talked before, where I mentioned how Norman was getting slammed absolutely too much. And you said it didn't really matter because Norman wasn't really that over anyway. And I said, it wasn't about Norman. It was about the other guy. You, you needed to save that for a certain guy so that that guy looked bigger. And here Brian Pillman does it. It's still impressive, but we've already seen four other guys slam him in the last couple of weeks on TV. So I, that's why I said I wish they had saved it for someone here like, like Pillman, who's just now getting over and, and elevating himself. But uh, Brian Pillman with a, a body slam, a suplex, a missile drop kick. Uh, Pillman goes back up for the big flying splash, lands on the knees of Norman. Uh, Norman comes back with a big leg drop, but Pillman kind of no-sells it as Norman lays down laughing, and Pillman just jumps up from the leg drop, grabs Norman's legs, jackknifes him, and gets the pin. Three minutes, 16 seconds. Brian Pillman wins the match, but maybe not necessarily the war, because Teddy Long is pissed off, and he starts slapping the shit out of Norman, which is just a hilarious visual. He orders Norman to go get Brian Pillman in the aisle and bring him back to the ring. Otherwise, he's heading back to the loony bin. So Norman out there, he grabs Brian Pillman, posts him outside the ring, throws him back inside, nails the big middle rope splash with a key on his chest. I, that was absolutely corny to me. Norman goes up for the splash, and it felt like Teddy Long just ad-libbed this at the last second. He takes the key and lays it on Pillman's chest as Norman splashes Brian Pillman. I don't know what that was supposed to do. But, yeah, they did that. Uh, yeah, I didn't necessarily pick up on it right away, but then they showed the uh, replay, and I saw him laid on his chest. And it's not like a normal key. It's a pretty big one. But, yeah, man, what the hell is that going to do to anybody? <laughs> it's so stupid. I thought the aftermath was better than the match itself. It gave Norman something that I felt like they should have went more towards. Maybe he does that stupid stuff during a match, and then all of a sudden he rolls outside. He can't control himself. And then maybe Teddy Long just slaps him around a couple times and snaps him into a rage where he just snaps on people. I, I felt like if they went that route with Norman, I, th I felt like it could have been a lot more effective compared to what we did get. So uh, this is what it should have been the whole time. I'm sure we see it again, similar to this, but it's not something that obviously sticks around. If you're going to do something like this, this is how that's how it should have been. 
Yeah, I agree. From the beginning, Norman needed that killer instinct, and he finally has it here. It just took him this long to really break it out, and they're almost retelling the the story of Norman here. As Teddy Long says, it's a new Norman, and he's going to be more aggressive going forward. So it's like they're trying to rebuild the character. We'll see if it works or not in, in the weeks to come. But uh, a fun little angle as we start a Brian Pillman and Norman feud. Yeah, on paper, you probably don't want to really hear that because Pillman... I mean, he's a fast-paced guy, so I'd like to see him in there with somebody a little bit better. But I knew from when I first watched this, I knew that I've heard of the matches with him and Owen, so I knew I was looking forward to it a little bit just because of that more than anything else. We move on to our next match is the Steiner Brothers with uh, Missy Hyatt taking on the team of Ron Simmons and the Bounty Hunter. And this is what I'm talking about. Ron Simmons basically relegated to jobber status, teaming here with the Bounty Hunter. Rick Steiner tries to take Missy Hyatt's Michigan jacket off as they head to the ring to show off her tatas. So I'm really not sure what Robin Green's thinking about all of this. Rick Steiner's constantly tugging at Missy's skirt, her tops. He's wanting to be flashed. I don't know, man. <laughs> he just likes boobs, I guess. Rick Steiner with some shenanigans early on in the match. Ron Simmons winds up clotheslining his own partner, the bounty hunter. Rick uh, crawls around on all fours, chasing the heels around the ring. Comedy ensues because it's Rick Steiner. Scott Steiner tags in, nails the Frankensteiner mid-match on the Bounty Hunter because it's still not a finisher. Finally, we see the Iron Sheik wander down to ringside for one of what feels like uh, at least a half a dozen times to consult Ron Simmons, which we saw this with Teddy Long and Ron Simmons just a couple of months ago. And now the Iron Sheik, they're they're rehashing the same exact storyline for Ron Simmons here. Yeah, it doesn't make sense, and I, I don't have it down for this match, but after about, I think, two more shows of this, I'm just thinking to myself, are we are we supposed to be that stupid that these these guys <laughs> keep on signing up to be Ron Simmons' partner, where he's just leaving him leaving him hanging? I, I know he did it to Ranger Ross during the tag tournament, so he gave up a shot at the tag titles to go talk to Teddy Long, and nothing ever came of it. So let's do it again with the Iron Sheik, which is even worse. So like, hey, I just don't hey, fuck you, fuck you, Steve, you no good punk jabroni, and I tell you, I tell you one time. I tell you, Ron Simon, I tell him that Bonnie Hunter, no good punk jabroni jobber bitch. You come, you team with the Irish Sheik, yahala motherfucker. <laughs> I'm sure that's what he said. That is probably. Hi, I told him motherfuck and a fucking bitch and fucking bullshit. Son of a bitch, Hulk Hogan. <laughs> yeah, I, don't, I just don't know why people are signing up to be Ron Simmons' partner at this point. I mean, he's just going to leave him hanging. Yeah, and that's what happens here. Ron Simmons winds up once again leaving with the Iron Sheik. He never even tagged into the match. In fact, I don't believe. If he did, it was really early on in the match anyway. Rick Steiner with the Steiner line and overhead belly-to-belly on the Hunter and then tags in brother Scott, who they screw up the the rolling belly-to-belly. So Scott winds up hitting the belly-to-belly twice to get the win here in 3 minutes, 25 seconds. So, like I said, Ron Simmons reportedly turns down the Ebony Experience gimmick with Butch Reed, but he's cool with the Iron Sheik here. Yam, ya, Russia, he's not with me no more. It's Ron Simmons, Georgia number one. Georgia, not Russia, Georgia, Iran number one. USA, fuck you, bitches. (laughs) Oh, man. Pay attention, idiot. Somebody (laughs) needs to tell Sheiky that Ron Simmons lives in the United States. (laughs) <laughs> right, I mean, like the whole Cuban assassin really thing close. that makes sense. He's he's Cuba, you know. That's uh, Castro, but I mean Ron Simmons. 
I guess he does kind of turn on the United States because he defaces them and starts waving the Ayatollah flag, which is just stupid and comical in itself, just watching it happen. Only in wrestling. Right, only in wrestling. I mean, an all-American. An all-American, yeah. Absolutely. (laughs) Oh, Lord. 1989, guys. (laughs) The Road Warriors in the ring. We don't see a lot of Road Warriors squashes uh, really this entire year. They've been off TV quite a bit as far as uh, working squash matches. They get the win here over Bob Emery and George South. Insert promo during the match from Paulie Dangerously's selling the Road Warrior versus SST cage matches on the house show loop. The roadies have never lost a cage match is the selling point here as they go into the cage matches with the SST. A weird clothesline screw up on Emery. Did you see the finish? You remember the finish? I don't know if you took notes on this. They were looking for something where Animal hits a clothesline on Emery, but at the same time, Hawk's supposed to hit a clothesline to the back of Emery, basically sandwiching him with clotheslines, which just is awkward in itself, but they kind of screw the spot up and it looks really terrible here. And that's basically the finish. Uh, Emery doesn't really bump. (laughs) They just kind of throw him down and make the cover. Match win a minute and 19 seconds. What did you think of the finish? It just looked ugly and very sloppy. It's not what you expect from a Road Warriors. They usually have those things dialed in and are pretty good at connecting the way it needs to be connected with, and they totally messed that one up. Um, I, did you miss a Pedicino Nose right before that match? <sighs> well, I have one Pedicino Nose right here in my notes. I guess I skipped the other one. Uh, the only reason I was bringing it up is because they did the fan scan gimmick that they've been starting. That's probably <laughs> why I skipped it. No, go on, man. They go to a woman in the crowd, and she wants some of Lex Luger. <laughs> like, bad. Oh, She's thirsty for some Lex Luger. Oh, man. I thought it was pretty funny. But, oh, uh, man. That was pretty much it. These fan scan <laughs> things, they, they need to go away in a hurry. I'm I think they do. You. <laughs> <laughs> so after the roadies match, we get a pre-tape promo from Paul Ellering and Road Warrior Animal. They're basically just hyping the house shows, hyping the cage matches upcoming with the SST. We go to our next match. It's the Great Muda over Alex Porteau in just two minutes with a German suplex. I actually put the finish of this match up on Twitter. It was so fluid, so flawless. Also an insert promo by Sting over the TV title situation in the middle of the match, but the finish was really great. Muda hits the handspring elbow in the corner and kind of overshoots it a little bit and realizes it immediately, obviously. And so he takes the backflip over the top rope to the floor, lands on his feet on the floor after the handspring elbow in the corner and then just slides right back in, hooks Porto from behind right into a German suplex and a bridge and gets the win in just two minutes. Very fluid, very flawless execution by Muda, whether he meant to do it or not. Yeah, I think you mentioned that on the moonsault where you kind of over-rotated. This is way back when you first debuted. You over-rotated and like landed feet first. That Even when he messes up, he does something awesome. And uh, that's no different here. Like He definitely he way overshot that moonsault. Or the handspring, anyway, the elbow, and <laughs> went flying. But like you said, I think he realized it, and he just went with the. He just went with it. He trusted himself, and to be honest, it looked really awesome. Just landing on your feet out of that move is crazy, and uh, it just goes to show the talent that Muda had. It's another edition of Pedicino knows. This time, he's pimping the current feuds in the company. It's the Roadies and SST. It's Sting and Muda. It's Flair and Funk. And Pedicino speculates that maybe Lex Luger is afraid of Tommy Rich. And I had to laugh as I, as I, as I visualized Lex Luger standing across the ring from Tommy Rich and why he would be afraid of somebody that looks like Tommy Rich here who hasn't done a whole lot. If Lex Luger's afraid of arm bars, he may fear Tommy Rich. Otherwise, he's, he's okay. Yeah, he has no reason to fear Tommy Rich. Let's be real. That ship has sailed. 
And it's the main event time here on Pro. It's Dr. Death once again taking on Captain Mike Rotunda. Match number two in the Scientific Challenge. Remember, Nick Patrick announced last week on Pro that the only way to win a match is for your opponent to get disqualified. He has to break the rules. That's the rules at least last week, and that's what happens. Dr. Death gets disqualified. We see a clip here, I believe. But So Rotunda's up one to nothing here as we get going in this match. Doc, this time, is sporting amateur headgear. And he's doing that, the announcers say, so that he can't hear the comments Rotunda's making. Rotunda can't goad him into punching his face off again and getting disqualified. I thought that was clever, and it just looked cool to see Doc look a little different, wear the, the amateur headgear, kind of like Rick Steiner here. Uh, but it was just funny, the story they told, that he's wearing it so he doesn't hear the comments Rotunda's making, the, the bullshit that Rotunda's spewing to goad him into getting disqualified. Yeah, I thought that was great. It's just one of those subtle things that I think, this is the one with Lance and Bob, right? Pro. Yes. They got, yes. They got the, yeah, they did a great job of selling it, uh, especially Lance here. Talking about how he doesn't want to hear what Mike Rotunda has to say about him. He's like, as soon as that match started the week prior, Mike was talking the whole time, just talking him into trying to punch him. Just great stuff from Doc getting the head. Probably brought it from Rick Steiner and uh, went out there with it on. Just really cool. Definitely unique. And it, it doesn't seem like it's a lot going on between these two with like a two out of three really that is there. The varsity club's long gone, and it's just kind of thrown together, but they're actually taking the time to put something into it and make it something that it probably had no intention of even being. So kudos to both of them for actually trying something here. Right. And it's a fun competitive match, I thought. Uh, both guys doing the pro amateur style, lots of escaping and fighting to get control of the match. Just good stuff from both sides. Mike gets def- desperate. He keeps shoving Doc. keeps trying to go Doc into getting disqualified here. Doc does return, but not with a punch, but with a big press slam. But Doc winds up missing a corner charge, and I wrote, holy shit. I don't know if you remember, but Doc basically comes off all the, almost spears the top turnbuckle. Uh, Could have knocked himself silly. It was a really cool bump there by Dr. Death in the corner. Anyways, uh, Mike winds up ripping the headgear off of Dr. Death at this point, and then as Doc goes after it to put it back on, Mike kicks it out of the ring, so no more headgear here from Dr. Death, Steve Williams. So it's uh, one-on-one. Maybe this is the point where Mike tries to get himself another DQ win. As uh, Doc teases to punch him, he draws back like he's going to clock Mike, but as Mike ducks and argues with the referee, Tommy Young, hey, he tried to punch me again. Dr. Death schoolboys him, rolls him up, and gets the win in five and a half minutes. So Mike Rotunda's uh, gimmick that worked last week worked against him this week is the story. Yeah, and it makes sense. So now we got match number three, right? <laughs> My only issue here is last week the rules were you had to be disqualified in order to lose the match. They didn't say you could win by pinfall. And here this week, we get a win by pinfall. So they should make the rules of this uh, scientific challenge uh, more clear. Yeah, I, I just interpret it as if you throw a punch or do something that's not scientific wrestling, then you can get disqualified. I thought they just adjusted the DQ rules to throw in, like if you throw a punch or things like that, if you're not wrestling and you're just fighting, then you can get disqualified. I, that's how, that's how I interpret it. Now we obviously didn't see that first pro show, so I don't know how it was presented in that sense here. It just felt like you can get DQ for throwing a punch. That's kind of how they presented it to me anyway. So we're tied now one-to-one rotunda with a win in match number one. Now Dr. Dad with a pinfall win here in match number two. It's time for a Gary Hart promo. Gary Hart channels his inner racist promo comments here as he says, the great Muda doesn't like us, us Americans, because we're prejudiced against the Orientals. 
That's Gary Hart's story this week. Right. Which is basically what he told Muda in real life when when uh, Crockett, or not Crockett, when Hurd and company, Flair and everyone wanted to turn him babyface. Uh, Gary Hart told him that American fans would never cheer an Oriental and told Muda to go back to Japan, which is what he did. So take it for what it's oh, worth. Lord. But Gary Hart living in the 70s when Pac Song Nam uh, had to be a heel because he was Korean, the Korean giant. Sometimes I just question Gary Hart uh, just living in the wrong decade, I think. He just never adjusted with the times, it sounds like. Yeah, and yeah. He's been doing a good job, again. don't get me wrong, with Muda in, in the last few months. But here, I, here we are. We're reverting back to this nonsense here, making it about race and culture and foreigners and things like that. The stupid shit he was doing with Dick Murdoch and Bob Orton, uh, that, that kind of stuff. That just needs to stay out of this. I mean, Muda's good enough where he doesn't need any of this, to be honest with you. Oh, absolutely. But, um, Nobody needs this. This is... It doesn't do anything for it's just, anyone. It's ridiculous. It's just an unfortunate talent like Muda got stuck with somebody like Gary Hart. And again, I know people love Gary Hart, and he has his pros and cons, clearly. I feel like Hart and Muda work together. It, he's just, like I said, uh, Gary Hart has that look that you just don't want to mess with him. And then you got the talent of a Muda. It's a good combination, but he led this dude astray. And it's unfortunate because this dude could have been a major player for the NWA in 89, 90, 91. He could have done everything he needed to do and could have been a top guy for the company and really helped him out. And he got bad info. We continue on with the show. It's a post-match brawl from the Great American Bash main event with Funk and Flair and Sting and Muda. I have no problem with them, like we pointed out on the last show, no problem with them showing this. This is what you want to show on your TV to draw the ratings, to draw people to the house shows, to watch the rematches. So good job there. We get a Terry Funk promo, a quick promo on Ric Flair. He calls Ric Flair yesterday's wine. I'd have to imagine that Terry Funk knows a little bit about alcohol. I don't think that it's a bad thing to be aged wine. So I'm not sure what Terry Funk was going there, where he was going with there, but... That's what he calls Ric Flair this yeah. week, age, uh, yesterday's wine. <laughs> well, that must, be, that must mean he's pretty damn good, huh? Well, I mean, maybe you could kind of take it as he, he was just made yesterday, which that's not good wine, right? Good wine's 100 years old, right? So I don't know. Yeah. I just, it was that's just really, one. really odd. Really odd <laughs> promo from Terry. Terry's been hit or miss sometimes in the promos. That one, this one was a miss for me. He's definitely lost some of that steam he had when he first came in. As far as promos go, anyway. I think he's just having a little more fun now, and that's kind of what's eating into this, especially with these uh, Funk's grills and things, which we'll get into when we get there. Uh, we close the show with Lance and Bob. Lance and Bob are trying to close the show when they're interrupted by Mike Rotunda. He says that Dr. Death threw a damn punch, which he didn't, but Mike swears that he did. So, damn it, Mike Rotunda thinks he should have won two in a row by disqualification, but that's just how it works, and that's it. Uh, no more rules, says Mike Rotunda. He wants Doc next week in the third match in a no-holds-barred match. So this entire idea of a scientific challenge leads to a no-disqualification match in basically what is fall number three. I just shake my head at this. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, my God. The whole thing was to see who was the best amateur pro wrestler, pure wrestler, scientific wrestler, whatever the hell they wanted to call it, however they wanted to phrase it. And it turns into a who can get who to throw a punch and then it turns into an ODQ match. So it doesn't, yeah. it doesn't prove anything at all. It's, it's a waste of time almost. It feels like. 
Yeah, and I could see that being match four, that either Dr. Death got the best of Mike Rotunda in this scientific series, and now that's it. Now Mike wants the rules thrown out the window. Now he's going to wrestle, you know, Dr. Death and show him who's boss here in match number four. I could see that. I could even see it working the other way around. Rotunda cheating to get that second fall in in the series, the three-series match, and then somehow Doc gets his way into a no-DQ match and a return match. Either way, that would make sense, but instead they incorporate it into the best of three series. Meanwhile, they actually have a third match, which is not part of the series. So the third match in the series is actually their fourth match overall, which just none of it makes any sense to me. Yeah, that threw me for a loop. So I'm like, okay, they have this match. I think it's on Saturday night. Right. But the the third match is actually, and I think, yeah, the third match is actually on pro. But it airs on Worldwide the week before. (laughs) Yeah, and then it's on Worldwide, and I'm like, oh, my God, what the hell is going on? Like, they have no idea what they're doing. They really have no clue. (laughs) This is the most disheveled they've been production-wise all year. So even when they were making faux pas earlier in the year, it was never a clusterfuck like this. I mean, it's it's hard to keep up with. I mean, you were Skyping me left and right at points when you were taking notes going, what, can you explain to me what the fuck is going on here? I mean, you were really confused and I don't mean that like you, you don't know what the, you like, you don't know what the hell you're doing. You were just like, can you fucking tell me what the hell is going on here? Why this is this? And am I, is this the right week? And yeah, I mean, uh, wasn't this two weeks ago and did this not supposed to happen until next week? I mean, so I, I, I had yeah. to break break it down for you because I'd already took notes on everything, so I kind of understood it a little better. But yeah, it's just crazy, man. If you, if you have no idea, like if you're just watching these shows in order, like we are, you're going to get lost. I mean, it, it's so hard to keep up with what they're trying to do. And okay, did I miss something? Like, there's things that happen that it even comes up. Like, I don't, I don't want to. Obviously, it's not spoiling anything, but there's this a show here where Robin Green comes out on pro or worldwide, but then the date hasn't even happened yet on Saturday night. You don't even see her transform, but she's already out on the show in the morning. So it's almost as if they realize nobody's watching syndication. So they just don't care. And that, that's what it feels like because there's no continuity between any of this show. There's continuity between power hour Saturday night and main event. Well, there's so um, many issues and we, we're not going to get to it until the next episode of the grenade now, but there's so many issues. You have to remember on the August 19th episode, of World Championship Wrestling, which is basically non-existent. And then uh, August 26th, I don't know if you had a look in the Observer or any information like that, but there's a portion of that show, which I'm not going to get into big detail about it right now, that wasn't recorded. It was uh, aired at center stage. They forgot to press the record button on the entire main event angles. So it was never recorded. Uh, Oh, my God. So there's (laughs) back-to-back weeks where we have major, major issues. Uh, with the World Championship Wrestling Show. Fortunately, all of that's a big clusterfuck, and I can't wait to get to that next week. That's a, that's another whole another ball of wax, and I'm, it's another reason why I'm kind of glad that the August 19th and 26th episodes will be on the same edition of The Grenade because it's a lot easier to cover all that in one show because it's just a, a, yeah. a mess. Yeah, I don't, I, I don't know how you fix it when you record five or six weeks at a time as far as syndication goes. So I think that, it's like about four hinder, weeks. That does hinder things a little bit. Because if things change and stuff like that, you're kind of screwed because you can't fix it. But when you're trying to do an angle, like a two out of three falls over multiple shows, why the hell are they fighting any other time but those three matches? Like, uh, I think I did ask you when I was watching Saturday Night, is this the third match? And you're like, no, this is just a throwaway match. But the real match is that you're supposed to see on Pro next week, but they already showed it on Worldwide. And I'm just like, 
mind blown. They have really no <laughs> clue. You basically get five matches out of these guys, and if you're not paying attention, you think it's five different matches, but one of them's the same. So, oh lord, I think they yeah. aired on main event on that recap on that recap show. I think it was where it was. I think I don't know. Hard telling. I give up. We this is we, thirty years later, bro. Yeah, thirty one. Thirty one, 31, man. Even even longer. <laughs> <sighs> And I'm struggling to keep up. Could you imagine without the internet and tape trading trying to keep up with this shit? Good Lord. Yeah, no doubt. We move on. We'll move on to the other other syndicated show, and uh, hopefully we close out New Orleans this week as well. We're at NWA Worldwide for August 12th, and we're back in New Orleans here. It's Tommy Rich teaming with Flying Brian Pillman taking on Ron Simmons and Cruel Connection. And if you don't know what happens by now, you're a complete buffoon. Because once again, it's the Iron Sheik. Headed down to the ring. I have a word with you, Ron Simmons. You come down here. You don't team with the cruel connection. Yahala, he from parts unknown. That's as bad as a USA. So he tells him, leave the cruel connection in the ring. And Ron Simmons does so. So once again, Cheeky Baby screws over Ron Simmons' partner here. As does Ron, for that matter. Does press on cruel connection. Gets the win in two and a half minutes. And isn't it funny how sometimes on pro and worldwide... They can have flowing continuity between the two shows. Like a storyline can begin on one show, continue on the other one. And then other times they air the same exact angle on both shows like this Ron Simmons, Iron Sheik shit here and pretend like it did, the other show doesn't even exist. It's so weird how some weeks they play together and other weeks it's like they're their own entities and the other show doesn't even exist in the world of the NWA. It just makes no sense. It's almost as if they do things repetitively to say, okay, well, if they miss pro, at least they got worldwide to see the same thing and vice versa. So they're booking in the mindset or they're doing these tapings in the mindset of, well, they're not going to watch everything. So let's just do the same thing on both. And hopefully they catch one of them, which is not how you're supposed to book that shit, but that's neither here nor there. It's just brutal. We get a Steiner Brothers promo. They're taking on the Freebirds here today, the world champion Freebirds. They mock the birds as being sissies, but they put over Terry Gordy, who's all but gone from the company at this point, so that's unfortunate. It's kind of interesting how both the Midnights, Jim Cornette, and the Steiner Brothers shit all over the Freebirds, but they put over the toughness and the manliness of Terry Gordy, so he gets the respect of everyone. It's like life imitating art or art imitating life or whichever the case may be. Because that's what you get here. You get the badass Terry Gordy who even we, you know, we respect. And he's teaming with the birds who we really don't want to see. And uh, (laughs) their opponents say the same thing. Yeah, I I think it's just, you know, like you said, Bam Bam deserves the respect that he's given. And it's just the eye test. Like, if you line up the free birds, who are you going to be afraid of? Well, I'm not messing with Bam Bam. You know, I'll take my chances with Michael Hayes and Jimmy Garvin. Uh, just based off a of look, I don't know. I don't know many stories of them if they're how tough they are. If they've been into fights, I don't see Michael Hayes really doing that. I could be wrong. It's just the eye test. So you're you're not insulting the intelligence of the fans. Like okay, Midnight Steiners, they can see that Bam Bam could be a problem. So we're gonna give him his props, but these other guys, we're gonna take them. I'd rather take my chances with them. So this this makes sense. You're not calling us stupid by what they're saying. So I, I can appreciate that. Yeah, it's just so funny that they, you know, they even discuss like um, Gordy's integrity, though. You know, like remember Cornette said, I expected yeah. this from Hayes and Garvin, 
but I never thought I'd see the day that I could call Terry Gordy yellow, you know, and then mm-hmm. Gordy yeah. you know, and Gordy's a heel. You really don't put a heel over like that. And then obviously immediately Gordy, the character throws his shirt off and he's headed to the ring and here the Steiner brothers. Well, we'll get to that angle when we get to the angle, but uh, it's just interesting that the way they treat Terry Gordy compared to the other Freebirds, instead of lumping them all in together or, as one character. You think there's a reason for that? Like, Anything behind the scenes, or does no, that have anything think so. to do with the fan stuff? I think it's just the character, it, man. I think it's just the character. It's just respect at that point. It sounds like. Yeah, well, Terry never bought into the whole rock and roll part. You know, if you want, if you're paying attention here with Garvin, and he, he's wearing the Oakleys, and he even looks out of place with the Oakleys on. Gordy does compared to the other two, with their nonsense attire <laughs> compared to Terry Gordy. He does look badass in those Oakleys, though. I'll give him that. It doesn't fit him, but he looks badass. I'll, I'll say that. It's uh, back to the ring with Norman the Lunatic, managed by Teddy Long, taking on Trent Knight this week. We get an insert promo from Teddy Long who says the Skyscrapers won the Battle Royal and against the dudes at the Bash, but people forgot about Norman. This is the resurgence of Norman, or it's supposed to be anyway. Peanut had chance getting over pretty loudly here the last few weeks on TV, and I think they've kind of dropped trying to attract the lunatic chants, which weren't getting over, and now they're more focused on just getting the peanut head chant over on Teddy Long. Makes sense. Teddy Long has more heat. Norman is failing at this gimmick because he's just too nice of a guy, I feel. The gimmick is so flawed and fake because we get things like, he just doesn't know how to be mean. And that's proven here as Trent Knight goes down on the floor and Norman hits one of the shittiest splashes I've ever seen on Trent Knight on the floor. And it wasn't because Norman doesn't know how to deliver a splash or he was trying to protect himself. It was because he didn't want to hurt Trent Knight. But it winds up looking so phony and hokey that I wish he hadn't tried to move at all. If you're going to do it, just do it. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. I mean, there's a lot of things wrong with the Norman gimmick. Uh, it's not Mike Shaw's fault at all. No. I, I mean, it, it is. It is. But he got handed shit right away, and uh, he's just not, like you said, he's not a very good actor to make up for whatever shortfalls this gimmick's going to put him in. Well, and, I think uh, this is the first instance here. I think this booking committee here in 1989 is the first instance in the NWA of handing people gimmicks rather than allowing them to come in and tell you what they're comfortable doing. Uh, you know, they're kind of trying to morph into the WWF light. It, 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 working. Yeah, it doesn't work. You can't hand these guys gimmicks like the ding-dongs. Here you go. Put these on and ring bells and go get it over. You know, there's no other explanation to it. Bruce Pritchard still swears on a stack of Bibles that the only reason the Red Rooster didn't get over was because Terry Taylor never really gave it his all. He he never really tried hard. And and he he swears to it. And I I think, to be honest with you, the WWF, yeah, they had gimmicks, but... Outside of those over-the-top ones, like the Red Rooster, so to speak, it, a lot of the gimmicks just felt like extensions of the character. Yeah. It wasn't something stupid like the Ding Dongs or a, a dude being an insane person. That's a, that's a total gimmick that you're asking that person to transform into. Now, there, there's some, like the Berserker, but again, that was kind of John Nord's gimmick. It was just fit in a WWF world. Uh, because he was crazy like that in AWA from what I've seen and everywhere else he was at. Well, yeah, so. he was doing Brody's gimmick. He had teamed with Brody yeah. quite a bit and worked with Brody. Brody actually gave him, he said, go ahead, you can go do my gimmick. And that's basically what he went went on to do. You know, he did it in the AWA in the mid-80s and 
he was always kind of wild in, in, in anyway. And all Vince did was slap, you know, some horns on his head and give him a, a shield and a sword. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, so it wasn't like insulting or anything. So that that's the misconception with WWF and the WCW or NWA here. That's what they're trying to do. Thinking that's what WWF is doing. And it's not, I mean, Jim Duggan is Jim Duggan. He's just to the max, you know, 9,000 or, you know, uh, Big well, you got to give guys credit like Beefcake. I mean, I, I'm he tells the story he thought it was a rib when they told him he was going to become a barber until right. until they send him to barber college or barber school or to Vince McMahon's barber, the the, the million-dollar haircut. <laughs> yeah, and then he got a gimmick that lasted a lifetime. So, I mean. I mean, he got it so, over. So he yeah. put, put the effort into it. Yeah. And Norman here, I don't know that he's not trying to buy in. I just don't think he has what it takes to play this gimmick. I don't think so either. He just doesn't have that acting ability that you do, you do need it. Oh, to play this character. Absolutely. This is an undertaker type character. This is an undertaker type Uh character. If you don't have the right guy playing this character, it's not going to survive. Certainly not for 30 years. No, absolutely not. So again, I like the premise of it. It's just, yeah, there's a lot of good things about it. Is not the right guy. No. So back in the ring after that uh, awesome splash on the floor, Trent Knight tries a sunset flip, but it's a trip to the bat cave as Norman drops his knees down on top of Trent Knight and his balls in Trent Knight's face gets the win in two minutes and 14 seconds. Oh Lord. <laughs> when will people learn not to do a sunset flip on a 400 pounder? I'm telling you. Yeah. You think people, <laughs> people learn these things by by now. We get a fun promo here from Rick Steiner. I have no idea where Scott Steiner has disappeared to, but it's very convenient that he's not out here. As Jim Ross said, he talked to Robin Green. Rick Steiner said something along the lines that she can't play ball. I'm not really following this Robin Green storyline at this point. It's kind of run its course for me. Yeah, we just talked about this a little bit, and it just seems like it started. It kind of dissipated. Law and now it's picking back up again. And I'm, I think he's referring to the fact that they just played basketball once. Like you beat her in a game of horse by scoring 21 points. Right. He said Rick Steiner says she can't play basketball. So I'm wondering if that's what he's referring to here. Yeah. This it's like oh shit. It kind of feels like oh shit. We forgot about this. So let's speed up where we was trying to go with it uh, a little bit because it seems rushed. Everything that they're about to start doing, the quicker it gets comes and the quicker it goes, the better off we're going to be. Yeah, I agree. And it is rushed a lot <laughs> to say the least, yeah. but at least when it's over, it's over. So Rick Steiner's out there. He says Michael Garvin and Jimmy Hayes are big sissies and he doesn't know why Terry Gordy is with them. He likes fighting Terry, but the other guys are like little girls. And of course this brings Terry Gordy out. Who's not really happy because Jimmy Garvin and Michael Hayes are his brothers. And Rick asks, hey, hey Terry, why, why do you hang out with those guys? And Terry says that Rick should understand what it's like to hang out with his brothers because obviously Rick hangs out with Scott. Rick doesn't get it. So Terry says that they're a little different. So even Terry's admitting that Hayes and Garvin are a little eh, questionable. Uh, he says they're a little <laughs> different, but they're still his brothers. And uh, Rick says that Scott doesn't wear sh- shiny stuff to the ring and if his brother was like that, he wouldn't even hang around with them. And I'm just like, wow, dude, really? <laughs> Jeez. Oh, Lord. So Terry's getting <laughs> pissed because Terry's trying his best to, do you remember like several weeks ago 
when we heard that promo from the Freebirds on an episode of World Championship Wrestling, they were referencing basically what I believe was this angle here. Uh, they said that the Steiners had called them sissies and that Michael Hayes said that Steiner didn't understand a lot, but he understood this and he held up his fist, which Hayes cuts another promo like that here in these shows too. But this was a two, three weeks ago. They they cut this promo on World Championship Wrestling and we both had mentioned that uh, this must have been an angle that never aired because we didn't know what the hell they were referencing. Well, here it is finally, two, three weeks later, we get the actual angle. So now we oh, understand Lord. what they were referencing all those weeks ago on World Championship Wrestling. Yeah, so, dude, I mean, it's just par for the course for this crap. <laughs> I've given up. And that's basically what happens here. Terry Gordy tries to reason with Rick Steiner, get him to understand that the Freebirds are his brothers. He doesn't appreciate what Rick's saying about him. Uh, Rick doesn't understand it. They're sissies. And so Gordy just finally just sucker punches Rick Steiner, takes him down. Garvin and Hayes run in to do the damage after the fact. And Scott Steiner finally runs out with a piece of plywood and runs off the Freebirds. So the Freebirds do a three-on-one beatdown on Rick Steiner's. I thought I thought it was funny that they made Garvin and Hayes look even more like bitches, sissies, if you will, purposely, intentionally, by having Gordy do the, the heavy work. And once Rick was actually down, then they come in and get the cheap shots in on Steiner. So it was pretty well done. I, I'd love to see me some Rick Steiner and uh, Terry Gordy matches. Oh, I think so, too. That would have been some great. Uh, you've talked about it with the roadies and the SST where they just get in the ring and beat the hell out of each other. Uh, that's what Rick and Terry Gordy would have done, and that would have been pretty entertaining. Um, I, I felt this went just a little too long to get to the angle. It, it seemed like they kept on – I think they said it three or four times. I just don't understand. I just don't understand. And Gordy, right. they, they're my brothers. They're my brothers. It, it, they, they did it like three or four times. It didn't really change anything. So it's like, all right, we should have just cut this short and get to the angle. And then that piece of wood that Scott Steiner came out with <laughs> – that thing was like paper thin. It's almost as if like when you're peeling plywood, like you said, or like that old wooding paneling off your wall. When it right. gets like, <laughs> it just felt like it was a thinned out piece. That it, was a, it was a plank, man. It was a plank. It was like a one yeah. by six. <laughs> it was a, it was so thin too. Like if they would have hit, if you would have hit somebody with it, it would have just shattered. It, it would have done uh, nothing. That would have made a great ball. visual though. <laughs> they could have sold it. It would have. But man, it's like shit. I gotta find something, and he just grabbed the first thing he saw. Probably whatever. It's, it was a good angle. I just wish it, you know, it flowed with the story that we're seeing right now. But. Right, right. I wish I wish we had seen this before we heard the promo that described this. Basically, is what I would like. I agree. It's uh, on to Pedicino knows. He talks about Ron Simmons. Ron Simmons has been in training with the Iron Sheik. Why? What are you gonna do? Iron Sheik. Iron Sheik teach you how to do the medicine, Bubba. That's what the Iron Sheik's training Ron Simmons with. And by medicine, I mean drugs. <laughs> Lots of them, too, I'm sure. Pedicino uh, says, uh, yeah, well, you got to do something with the Iron Sheik. <laughs> got to pay him, apparently. <laughs> yeah. Pedicino also announces they're going, to be, they're going to be introducing the fan scan camera. Pretty sure we've already seen that the last few weeks, Joe. Again, shit shown out of order. Oh, man. You notice he's in the middle of the crowd now, like in these, yes. these on these shows. I, I pointed out like at him. some point in my notes that all of a sudden he's no longer at a desk, that they're making him stand more often, uh, probably to get him a little more exercise. Well, he sells it as if he's doing like the announcing for the show. So he's like a special <laughs> ring announcer or something. For the he show. does mention on one of these shows, I think it's the next week though, that, uh, you may have noticed that I'm doing, if you heard my voice, I'm doing the ring announcing from backstage. And I'm like, yes, because they don't want you in the ring, Joe. 
<laughs> That's why. <laughs> I don't know why you had to put it. I wouldn't expect anything less based on everything we've learned from Joe Pettacene already, but I wouldn't expect anything less for the, other than him to put himself over. You may have noticed I was doing the ring announcing. You know, who the fuck else says that? I'm assuming he's talking about the power hour because he does the, doesn't he does it, do the introduction? No, he was talking about one. It's one of these house shows or one of these TV tapings, one of these syndicated TV tapings. Uh, he mentions it on a Pettacino knows probably next week though, that, uh, we may have heard him doing the, yeah, he's doing the ring announcing from backstage. And I'm just thinking, yes, because they don't want your ass out in front of the public. (laughs) Uh, God love you, man. Rest in peace. You know, He's not. A, he can't be that bad of a guy. He just—he's like—he's probably living his dream, and he's like, you know, what? I'm gonna make the best of it. I'm gonna get myself over. It's the uh, Road Warriors in the ring with Paul Ellering in their corner, <laughs> taking on Alex Porto and Avalanche. Avalanche makes it to a third show apparently here in the NW. I can't believe this guy—I can't believe the guy got booked more than once. Just looking at him, like he does nothing. He's just scuttered and stand. If they paid that guy, he got paid too much. If that guy got paid yeah. trans. If they gave him like fifteen bucks trans, he got paid too much. Yeah, he just—he was just fat, man. He was pudgy. That was really all he was. We get an insert promo in this match from Paulie once again. He's hyping those SST roadies cage matches. They're really selling these pretty hard for the house show loop. Uh, just in your basic promos here on TV. Yeah, they are. I mean, that's that's one of the takeaways from these shows is they're really, really selling the cage match. They're, it's not the massacre Marietta. It's going to be an actual match, cage match. So uh, they want people to come out and see it. If I could go back in time, I would go. I would go see these two beat the hell out of each other in a cage. Or these four, I should say. I wrote here in my notes the last time me and you saw the avalanche was with that Mike Blackwell, Mr. No-Sell, the dog of war. Uh, I, I put in my notes that when I first saw that match, if you had asked me who we were going to see again, it would have would have been the opposite way around. I would have, I would have guessed the avalanche would have been shown the door and we would have seen uh, Mike Blackwell again. Unfortunately, due to the circumstances that took place, it's the other way around here. And holy shit, Steve, did you see the awesome looking spiked shin guards the Road Warriors had for that? I'd never seen that before. They have these shin guards that start at the, basically the, the top of their foot and go all the way up to their kneecaps. Uh, just like their their black shoulder pads, but but their shin pads uh, are maybe even longer than that, really, as they go all the way from the knee all the way down. And the the spikes look legit, man. They look badass, real. Oh yeah, they do. It almost looks like the catcher stuff um, that the catchers would wear. Yeah, how high they go up. They look like catcher gear. And animal doesn't even take his off. He just leaves them on. And uh, yeah, they I'm look dangerous as hell, man. That was really cool. Those spikes I- look- a little too real. <laughs> I mean, it could be a great job, plastic, rubber, whatever. No, they, the well, animal said that their, their spikes were real back Ooh. then. People probably touching them things. They ah, there's no way those are. Oh shit. Yeah. I <laughs> mean, coming I'm, to the ring, I'm sure they did. I just but, wonder uh, why we never yeah. saw them before or again. I mean, they looked, uh, amazing. Maybe they took a little bit yeah, to take really- off. I'm not really sure what the deal was. They love to hit the ring and hit it fast and hard. I mean, that could be it too, but, to never see those again, man. I, I I don't remember seeing them again. I mean, that's just from my memory. But again, I'm with you, man. They just like to go out there and get right in the ring, get things done, and go back 30 seconds, you know? So I, that would have been something that they should have worn, like on the big matches, where they're going to go a long time and not necessarily start out guns right. blazing. Right. You get on the apron and do your gimmick and take it all off and then stand there and do your match. That would have been... That would have been ideal for that. Just kind of give those big matches that, that, that extra feel. 
But I'm with you, man. They look badass. Man. Roadies hit the Doomsday device on Alex Porto, get the win in 30 seconds. I could only imagine what would happen if they tried to hit the Doomsday device on that avalanche, dude. <laughs> Following the match, we... Chair drop. Yeah, well, I don't know if Animal could have really picked him up safely anyway. We get a promo here from the Road Warriors after the match, and Road Warrior Hawk says he's short on patience, he has a short fuse, a short temper, but there's one thing he's long on. And I was waiting for the punchline because it was Hawk. So thank God we didn't get it, though. And he's, lo- he's, lo- he's long on his memories. He's looking for revenge for the Marietta Massacre, where the SST and the Freebirds took out the Road Warriors. They're coming for revenge. The SST are first. Once they get done with the SST, their plan is to come for the world titles and the Freebirds. So that's basically where we're at. We're continuing the Roadies and SST feud, which culminates, I believe, at the next Clash of the Champions. We get the same bash post-match brawl and Terry Funk promo with the uh, yesterday's wine shit and whatever from pro. So we move on to our next match. It's the Steiner brothers with Missy Hyatt and Missy's out there in an all white uh, outfit, short skirt. I think she's worn this one on this taping uh, before. So we've seen it before, but it never gets old for me. And they're taking on the world tag team champion Freebirds, but this is a non-title match. So you know what that usually means? Uh, Yeah. The Steiners are getting the win to set up the rematch, right? Well, we'll have to wait and see. Let's run through the notes real quick. The match kicks off with the Freebird Sucks chant. And what happens when a Freebird Sucks chant breaks out? Absolutely. What else? Stalling from the Freebirds. They can't stand listening to it. So Michael Hayes and Garvin have to drop off the apron and grab their ears and threaten to walk away. And uh, I mean, they'll stall for anything. Dude, uh, I ain't going to lie to you. I'm going to be honest with you guys. I fast forward like the first three or four minutes of a Freebirds match every single time, no matter who they're fighting, because by the time their music starts, by the time they get in the ring and get all their stupid shit off, you still got three minutes before they even tie up and do anything because they stall every single match for like five minutes. It's just so ridiculous. It's like you're not even that over, dude. You're not even that over. It's like go away heat more than anything else it feels like. And yeah. They're selling it as if they're getting the most heat on the card. And, oh, my God, it's so it's infuriating. So we get some fun spots here by the Steiner brothers. Scott Steiner with the uh, blockbuster suplex. That's the uh, backflip power slam is what I used to call it as a kid anyway. On Michael Hayes, that one looks completely fucked up because, well, he did it to Michael Hayes. Yeah, Scotty does the same thing to Jimmy Garvin. Actually, I think that was the first time I've ever seen Scott completely clear the move, a complete backflip rotation on Jimmy Garvin. Really nice looking there. Michael Hayes uh, winds up hiding in the ropes from Rick Steiner, so Rick walks over and kicks him in the ass, literally. I thought that was a fun comedy spot there from Rick Steiner. And the Steiners dominate the first seven minutes of the match, if you don't count the stalling at the beginning. Scott goes for a monkey flip in the corner on Jimmy Garvin, but Michael Hayes runs over and jabs Scott right in the face, and the Freebirds finally take over and get heat on Scott Steiner. And what happens when the Freebirds take over? Chin locks, baby. That's what I'm talking about. Scott Steiner counters a Jimmy Garvin bulldog and a hot tag to Rick Steiner. Steiner lines for everyone. Michael Hayes bumps like shit, lands on his ass repeatedly. No shocker there. We get a four-way melee as Michael Hayes picks Rick Steiner up for a slam, but Scott Steiner comes off the top rope with a cross body block onto his own brother Rick. They both land on top of Michael Hayes. Rick Steiner gets the pin. It's the same finish as the bash match against uh, Kevin Sullivan and Mike Rotunda. The Steiners beat the uh, World Tag Team Champions here, non-title match in eight minutes, 58 seconds. Nine-minute match, and you get a finish, and the baby faces go over to continue the storyline, the Freebirds and Steiner storyline. 
Yeah, that's one of those few TV matches that actually had a finish. Um, but as soon as you heard it was non-title, you almost expected that. Once the action picked up, which in a Freebirds match, it almost feels like it never does. But this one towards the end, like the moves that the, the Rick and Scott can do, even through all the stalling, they can still make it entertaining. I love the Steiner brothers, man. Yeah, they're still a little green, and they're still f- figuring some things out. Obviously, like with the moves they're doing, they just don't know when to place them properly. Like a Frankensteiner at the very beginning of a match just to do it because you can do it is a little ridiculous. Yeah. But uh, all in all, uh, just the power, the sheer power that these guys have, and they're just tossing people around. They really can do whatever they want in that ring to whoever they want to do it to, and um, it's just awesome to watch. So, so damn entertaining. Another poly dangerous for the promo. They continue to hard sell this SST and Rhodey steel cage match all around the loop. I hate to keep saying it, but that's just what they're doing here. And we close the show, and it's funny how whatever they do on pro, they seem to do on worldwide. We ended pro with a heel butting in to the close of the show, uh, basically announcing a match for next week. Uh, we saw it with Rotunda doing it for him and Dr. Death in a rematch. And here, it's a little different, thanks to Jim Ross, but it's still the same. The Freebirds are out here. They're pissed off. The Birds are pissed. They don't cheat. The Steiners cheated. It took two guys to beat Michael Hayes. Uh, they want a rematch next week. And Jim Ross plays Booker again, like he did with the Birds in the Midnights, where he goaded the Birds into putting the titles up against the Midnights on World Championship Wrestling several weeks ago. He tells the Birds, what do the Steiners have to win by wrestling you again next week unless you put the titles up on the line? So Jim Ross basically books the match for him and they make it a World Tag Team title match for next week, Pally. So the Birds versus the Steiners, a World Tag Team title match on Worldwide next week. Plus, number 10, Tommy Rich in the top 10, taking on number 4, Terry Funk, two former world champions for what it is. So two matches announced for next week's Worldwide. Yeah, they are doing a better job of you know promoting what's coming up and things like that, and they finally got, I know it's been a few months, we just haven't brought it back up, but they've been consistent with the... Uh, the commentary things really haven't changed uh, with these shows and they are better compared to what we was watching early on in the year. So um, I was actually looking forward to the match with them the following week. Uh, I want to, for some reason I want to watch a Freebirds match, but when the Steiners are involved, it makes it easy. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And uh, there's an upcoming match with the midnight express too, where I thought they carried the Freebirds to a watchable match, not a good match, but a watchable match. About as good as you're going to get in 1989 with the Freebirds without Gordy involved. And we move on to the 605 program. It's NWA World Championship Wrestling for August 12th, and we kick things off right away with a Lex Luger promo. Let's hear what the total package has to say. Here is Mr. Luger now, obviously making us wait a little bit as usual. What else is new? The fans, as we mentioned, the second most prestigious championship in all of sports is the United States Heavyweight title. Tommy Rich has his sights set on this championship and this big man. You know, Jim Ross, <laughs> the never-ending search goes on for a suitable competitor, the caliber of athletes that can even challenge and give the total package Hexagor a competitive match. And who do they dig up? And when I say dig up, Jim Ross, I mean that literally straight from the dirt farm Moses Dusty Wrestling Boots, he's been out of the limelight, a former world champion, no one questions his credentials. But things have changed, Tommy Rich, you hop in your pickup truck, 
with dirt under your fingernails, tobacco flakes between your teeth, and you come to the NWA where there's the best wrestling, the only wrestling, and you want to challenge the total package Lex Luger for the U.S. heavyweight title. Well, you see, there's a new breed of athlete in professional wrestling right now, and baby, I'm the prototype, Tommy Rich. I am the man to beat in this sport today. I'm going to do a public service for all you punks out there who think you can walk off the street and challenge an elite world-class athlete such as myself. It can't be done. And you're Tommy Rich, are going to learn the hard way, baby, with the total package to the king of the hill, class that will never pass. The total package Lex Luger is all about, baby, and why I rule professional wrestling. Lex Luger has given himself about 4,000 monikers here over the last month or so. <laughs> It's I don't know if he's thinking about these before he goes out or if they just come to him while he's standing there. But yeah, I mean he, he he's the class that doesn't pass. He's the prototype. He's the total package. Numero uno, baby. Right. I mean he's everything. Um, I, his promos are solid. I just I just think everything about Lex Luger right now is just awesome. Uh, is he's getting a little too big for what for me that I I think I mean he just. He looks like he just doesn't look normal. Uh, there's a, I think, I don't know if it's this Saturday night or the, I've been watching so many Saturday nights. I can't remember which one it is, but he comes out, he has no shirt on and he's wearing those black glasses and he poses. He, he's like, I'm going to give you a pose real quick. And he poses and I'm like, I sent it to my friend. I was like, that just doesn't look normal. <laughs> and it's like, that's just how big he is. But yeah, I mean, low key, Lex Luger is like really one of the, the bright spots of the NWA in 89, like consistently throughout the entire year. I don't think he did anything bad. I've been entertained with everything he's done uh, the whole year. And, I, and that's not just me being a Lex Luger fan. I just don't, for whatever reason, he's one of the guys, the few guys that have been protected and never really dealt with any bullshit uh, to hinder him. He's kind of just there, but it's nothing bad. Right. Besides Tommy Rich, but somehow Lex Luger gets a decent match out of him. So, And we get Lex Luger taking on Tommy Rich in the future here, like we pointed out. Ricky Steamboat's gone, so they parlay that into a Tommy Rich and Lex Luger. I won't call it a, a feud, but I guess it is kind of a feud because they're working all over the house shows. They work the upcoming Clash, and they're basically married to each other for the next several months on the house show circuit for whatever reason. When there's, You would ask on the last episode, who else would have filled the void? I guess Tommy Rich was the only guy laying around. I'm thinking... Flying Brian would have been a better fit. I think that would have been fun. I, I believe they wrestle each other at Clash of the Chan or uh, Halloween Havoc, if I remember correctly. Uh, so at least they made the wise call there instead of another Tommy Rich oh, yeah. match. And I'm not uh, dogging Rich in the fact that uh, he has a, if I remember correctly, he has a pretty good match with Lex Luger at the Clash, the September Clash Fall Brawl. But yeah, in general, there's really no heat here. It's just some words spoken back and forth. Mm -hmm. There's just no angle. There's nothing to punch it through. And Tommy Rich doesn't help himself here. He doesn't even help himself here against Lee Scott. And if Lee Scott can't make you look good, you're probably not doing that good right now. And uh, yeah. I've said it before. I'll say it again. I'm a big fan of Tommy Rich and Georgia Championship Wrestling. I love a lot of Tommy's stuff in Memphis. But here in 1989 NWA, his old, uh, old, old school mentality is not getting the job done. It's very reminiscent of some of the George Scott guys. Junkyard Dog, uh, the Iron Sheik. Maybe Tommy bumps more than the Iron Sheik, but it's just the uh, grab a hold and lay around mentality that's just too old school. It's, it doesn't work here. 
when you got guys like Muda and Sting and the Steiners on the same show. It it sticks out like a sore thumb. Absolutely. I mean, Tommy Rich is making the Freebirds a little entertaining, to be yeah, honest with you. Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, maybe Tommy Rich is a little more fundamentally sound, but Freebirds may be a little more entertaining. At least they, yeah. they, they appear to be alive during the matches. Tommy Rich comes in yeah. here, and just like all of his other matches here, I wrote this down. He's wrestling Lee Scott. Lee Scott, who is, you know, three-time VIP job of the month, but he's still a job guy. And he mm-hmm. works an arm bar, an arm bar on Lee Scott for four minutes. A, a oh. match that goes only a total of four minutes and 26 seconds. So this match is basically a four-minute arm bar and a Thez press, which makes absolutely no sense whatsoever anyway. Tommy Rich is absolutely going to have to up his game, given a position on the card like Lex Luger, semi-main event, basically. Uh, how he gets even yeah. thrown into that is unbelievable. Yeah, I'm with you. Pillman would have been so much better. And I feel like Pillman, obviously, is going to take that and run with it. Like, okay, here's my chance. I'm coming in. I'm getting Lex Luger right away. U.S. title matches. He's going to up his game and make Luger work his ass off. Uh, Tommy Rich isn't going to do that. But uh, my, my first note here when I saw this, I was like, why are they wasting a Lee Scott match on somebody like Tommy Rich? <laughs> I mean, because uh, you have some some bruisers out here that could really use somebody like Lee Scott to get themselves over, right. and Tommy Rich ain't it. So just bad, bad idea there. We see highlights of the New Zealand militia breaking Johnny Ace's cheekbone, and then we go to a match in the ring featuring Jacko Victory and Ripper Morgan, Rip Morgan, whatever you want to call him, the New Zealand militia over Mike Justice and George South, and there's a new referee in the ring. I have no idea who it is, but I did make a note that there's actually a third referee now in the NWA, so that was a long time coming. A shitty double gourd buster on George South gets the win for the militia in five minutes, and I wrote for this match pretty rough. There was a lot of mistimed spots and it just very sloppy work here. Yeah, I, I put it was really boring too. Uh, was that the ref with the mustache? Yes, and the mullet. Yeah, he's yeah he's around for quite a while too. I'm surprised you don't know who he is. Yeah, I mean, I uh, once I hear the name, maybe I go, oh yeah, yeah, I, I know the name, but I I don't know, I can't put the face to a name right now. I mean, I've seen him, I'll, I just don't know who he yeah. is. Yeah, I don't, I don't think they announced his name either. I, I'm sure it'll pop up at some point, but I was just curious if you knew who it was. I, I've always been curious on who his name was, but... I'm sure we'll hear it before the, the year's end. Surely they'll say his name at some point, and it'll probably trigger something immediately. Oh, yeah, yeah, I know the name. I do know, I mean, I watch so much wrestling that I can pretty much rattle off any name. Uh, maybe I just can't put the uh, face to the name sometimes when it comes to some of those more obscure referees that didn't really stand out. It's hard to stand out when Nick Patrick and Tommy Young are here. Yeah, absolutely. I'm glad they realized they needed a third guy because you don't think about that ever, but when you see the same two referees over and over and over again, it's like, damn, they must be tired. They need a break, obviously, too. So um, well, you, you need that you need that third referee out there anyway just to um, fill the gap. I mean, look, think back to the bash. Nick Patrick took the mist, mm-hmm. and Tommy Young had to finish out the rest of the show. Because they didn't have a third referee. Yeah, absolutely. We continue on with this show. It's Terry Funk and Gary Hart in a promo. Terry says he's never been so embarrassed in his entire life as he was by Ric Flair last week. That's when Ric Flair had ripped the coat off of Terry Funk and took his cowboy boots and danced in them. 
And Terry says, you never take a cowboy's boots. I love that line by Terry Funk here. Funny stuff by Funk. Uh, he t- <laughs> the next line was even better. He said that Ric Flair put the cowboy boots on and danced in them like a flamingo. Terry says that Ric Flair was so light-footed that he knows exactly why Ric Flair wears $5,000 robes. He knows why Ric Flair thickens his hair so nicely. He knows why Ric Flair should never be champion. He got his boots and coat, but Terry is going to get that world championship belt. He never does explain why Ric Flair does these things, but he knows why, but he doesn't tell us why. It's like when he said he knew where he was going, and then Jim Ross asked where he was going, and he said he was going in a straight line. I don't think Terry knows the answers to some of the things he says. And this is one of those times. I am going in a straight line. (laughs) It's still funny. (laughs) I thought he was insinuating things here uh, without without saying it. That's kind of how it felt. Because he was talking about how light he was on his feet. So he's like, okay, call him a flamingo. Call him a flamingo. Kind of the way I picked it up was he was saying, if he's going to be that way, then he shouldn't be champion. So that's kind of how he was hinting and insinuating. But without actually coming out and saying it, you kind of kind of connect the dots. Uh, I could be way off base here, but that's how I interpret it. I thought it was a funny promo. Yeah. And uh, I thought it was, uh, it's one of his better ones that he's had over the last couple of weeks. That's kind of uh, how I took it anyway. Right. And they close out the promo with Gary Hart. Gary Hart says, Flair and Sting may be number one today. But the fight has only just begun, and Funk and Muda will finish it. Move on back to the ring, and I I wish we hadn't. And I've forgotten to mention, this is the first time in a long time that World Championship Wrestling, the 605 show, is in the two-hour format, which means longer squash matches, which means this next match featuring the Freebirds goes on absolutely too, too long. It's the World Tag Team Champion Freebirds over Bob Emery and Ray Glacier Lloyd. Jimmy Garvin winds up with a DDT on Glacier, the future Glacier, in five minutes and five seconds. And and like I said, this is what happens on a two-hour show. The birds go twice as long as they need to. Maybe arguably five times as long as they need to. (laughs) Yeah, I'm with you. We go from the militia to these guys. Uh, I was praying it would be quick, and then it ended up being five minutes. And When it's a five-minute birds match, it feels like 15 minutes. So uh, definitely not good. No, definitely not at all. And if the match wasn't long enough, we're then treated, and I put that in quotation marks, air quotes, if you will, we're treated to a promo from the Fabulous Freebirds. They talk about the Steiner Brothers feud. Jimmy Garvin says the Steiners are idiots, so apparently they've taken promo classes with Mike Rotunda. Michael Hayes says Terry Gordy has gone back to Freebird Mountain because they don't need him in order to take care of the Steiner Brothers. So uh, Terry Gordy obviously gone from the NWA here. Yeah, and he, he made that line that you talked about earlier that we heard three weeks ago where he, Rick's slow and naive, but he understood his right hand. I thought it was cool when I first heard it. Now I'm tired of hearing it because he says it every time now, but heaven don't want us and hell's afraid we'll take over. Oh, he's been saying um, that for 10 years, man. I know, but uh, <laughs> he hasn't been saying it up until this point right. on the set, on these shows, so it's been nice not hearing it, but now every single promo ends that way, and it's just like, give it a rest, buddy. Go back to your music lyrics. <laughs> and so we go back in time to NWA Pro over the weekend. We see Flying Brian pin, pin Norman the Lunatic, uh, winds up taking the beat down from Norman, as we already discussed. And then we go back to the center stage, and it's our very first Flying Brian Pillman interview here in the NWA. 
Well, I happened to be in Baton Rouge to see that event, and I tell you something, I thought the guy was going to crush your ribs. I appreciate you taking the time to come out here and speak with us. This is one of the biggest men in the sport, Brian, and it's a tremendous challenge for you. We know he's kind of goofy, but he's certainly a force to be reckoned with. I think that was a pretty graphic illustration of what took place the other night in Baton Rouge. And I'm not going to waste a lot of time ranting and raving about it, because I'm here to wrestle. That's what brought me to the NWA. It was the ultimate competitive challenge of being here in the NWA. It was a hard-fought victory. I feel fortunate that I did get the victory in the chain of events that took place afterwards. It makes me feel like maybe I won the battle and lost the war. So what I'd like to do now, if possible, if I can put it in a nutshell for Mr. Long, no pun intended, peanut head, I'd like to challenge Norman. I'd like to challenge him right now to a match, hopefully here on TBS tonight. All right, well, we'll get Teddy Long out here, Brian, and we'll uh, we'll issue that challenge. I'm sure he's hearing it right now. We'll, we'll address that a little bit later in the program, and we'll be back. And so that's our very first listen to Flying Brian. So now we can put a voice to the, the guy, Flying Brian Pillman, here in the NWA. And I thought he did okay for a very first promo. We even did a little uh, parlay from uh, uh, Nutshell to Peanut Head, and he didn't really stutter or stammer. And I think the only reason, even though it was a very, very, very basic promo, the only reason I was really impressed here is his only experience in the business is in Stampede where your promo wasn't always necessarily, you know, the biggest thing. I, look at the hearts, right? I mean, it's not always, it's not like your number one thing you need to be able to do up there in Stampede. And I'm not saying he didn't cut promos while he was in Calgary because he did, but uh, I thought he did a good job uh, for his first time here in the NWA. I think so too. You can tell he's he's quick witted and intelligent as far as the way his mind works. Because like right. you said, he parlayed that uh, in a nutshell the peanut head. Like he was saying things and like the very graphic illustration. And yeah, that's just another way to the video footage we just saw. But it was an intelligent way to mention it. But it comes across very well, and you can kind of see already <laughs> how his mind works in that short little promo to where how it develops later on. So, yeah, I thought it was very good. I was like, I was shocked because I thought, like you said, those guys up in Stampede, they don't really need promos and the way Bret Hart is and things like that. I wasn't expecting much from somebody like Pillman to cut a promo that was coherent and decent, um, but he definitely surprised me. I thought it was good. It worked. I like how he said, he, you know, I was fortunate enough to win the, the match, but I lost the war. Right. So he wants to get his advantage. I thought that was very well Done yeah, and, and I, and I forgot to time. mention that. You're right. I forgot to mention that too. He, he that is the uh, premise of this entire promo is he challenges Norman to a rematch, uh, perhaps tonight on World Championship Wrestling, and we'll get a response from Teddy Long here before too long on this show. So I thought that was a good job. My only my only issue with this promo was I thought it was a little uh, quick. You just you just aired the promo the same weekend with Pillman going down. They basically sold it like he might be you know taken out uh, a commission here. Uh, Saturday morning, and by Saturday night, he's already looking for his rematch. Yeah. I think I would at least uh, give it a week. You can't fix production issues. <laughs> but, uh, uh, yeah, I, I also would like a follow-up question I'm with you, man. I, I was interested to hear more from you, to be honest with you. We move on to the Danger Zone and Polly Dangerously, and I couldn't believe this when I saw it. Captain Mike Rotunda is the guest of the Danger Zone. Wow probably the, the worst promo in the entire NWA right now. And Mike Rotunda joins Polly dangerously. Polly praises Rotunda's amateur credentials, compares them to the level of a Jack Briscoe. Uh, Rotunda says he has turned his amateur skills to pro better than both the Steiners and Dr. Death. Mike says 
Michigan State and Oklahoma have great athletic programs, but not the educational background of a Syracuse. Pauly says when Mike gets done with Doc, Doc is going to be as hopeless as the owner of a buffet when Joe Pettacino comes to town. Uh, how'd you like that line? I, was, I marked out. I thought it was hilarious. <laughs> uh, Mike says this all started out with Doc losing the world tag titles. He cost him money, cut a similar promo on Pro, but I think the highlight of this entire promo was Pauly ribbing Joe Pettacino once again. It's probably for Pettacino putting himself over <laughs> on syndication all the time. I, I felt like Dan- Dangerously clearly carried this whole segment. Uh, he was kind of feeding him lines a little bit right. and kind of leading him on where he needed to go. But, yeah, I don't know who the hell his idea was to put Mike Rotunda in this, but come on, man. Do better. So Rotunda closes the segment because he can't close a Rotunda promo without calling somebody a moron or an idiot or questioning their mental capabilities. So he closes the, sh- uh, the segment saying that Dr. Death has great in-ring abilities, but he has mental problems. I, I don't know that's why his it, that's his go-to in every single promo he cuts. Somebody has to be, quote-unquote, retarded. Maybe Doc does have some mental issues back in the varsity club days. But yeah, I, Mike Rotunda, like, I could, it's one of those things where people say, oh, like they did this or like they did that, uh, or it's like this, something like that. So it just feels like when Mike gets lost on what he's trying to say, he just goes to what he's comfortable with, and that's calling somebody an idiot, a moron, or stupid. And uh, I think he needs to do better than that. I'm very curious as to where Bray Wyatt uh, picked up the ability to cut promos because it certainly wasn't from his father. His uncle, maybe? I don't even know (laughs) that. I wouldn't even go that far. (laughs) I don't know that Barry Wendell was a a top promo guy either. uh, What about Blackjack? Maybe. Maybe it skipped a generation. That's possible. Uh, Blackjack Mulligan down to Bray Wyatt. That might work. Promo time from Teddy Long. He's going to reply to Brian Pillman's challenge for Norman. Teddy Long refuses the challenge of Brian Pillman versus Norman. Says Norman has nothing left to prove. He took out Brian Pillman already. Uh, He says Flying Brian has landed. The answer is no. The match will not be happening, at least not this week, between Norman and Flying Brian on World Championship Wrestling. Back to the ring. It's Big Sid Vicious, accompanied to the ring by Teddy Long and Dan Spivey, taking on Steve Casey the future Steve Dane. Sid fights Casey on his knees initially and then attacks him. I thought it was funny. Sid gets down on his knees, crawls around on his knees, walks around begging Steve Casey to wrestle him on his knees, just making Casey look like a complete bitch here. Uh, but uh, like, a, like a natural heel, Sid winds up attacking Casey eventually. And one move, a clothesline, and Sid gets the win in 45 seconds. Wow. And uh, I believe that concludes the era of the chopper here in the NWA. Yeah, man, we're running out of time. Not not necessarily on this show, but you know, with the grenade as far as the NW eighty nine, that has to be our, our goal for this era or for this year of NWA to find out why the hell he's called the chopper before we we sign off for NW eighty nine. We gotta get that answer out to the people. I have tried my damnedest to ask so many people and I just can't get an answer. I've asked Jim Cornette. I've asked Jim Ross. You know, Jim Ross has said it on commentary repeatedly. Cornette is like an encyclopedia of information. If he was around, he remembers it. And so I figured one of them could help us out because they've responded to us in the past, but neither one of them got back to me with this. I asked Chaz uh, from Global, who feuded with Steve Dane for seemingly a year. I mean, it wasn't, but it seemed like that. They had the bungee match. You, you, you bond when you almost die, you know, wrestling each other, uh, falling down a bungee cord. 
So I asked Chaz, who was uh, friends with Steve Dane, but he said he had never heard the moniker or the nickname before, so, which makes me think it was even more of a rib here in the NWA. So he didn't have any answers for me. So I went and found what I thought to be Steve Casey's brother, Scott Casey, Cowboy Scott Casey from the old Southwest Territory. And then some people might remember from the late 80s and the WWF as well. Uh, I said, Scott, I just want to ask you about your brother, Steve Casey, because if you read anything online, they're brothers. Um, it's one of those kayfabe brothers, apparently, that everyone bought into. The conversation started off uncomfortable because I said, I wanted to ask you about your brother, Steve Casey. And his response back was, I haven't talked to him in years. So I felt uncomfortable then. I'm like, I, I don't want to talk sibling rivalry or whatever the hell's going on. Like, I don't, I don't mean to walk into anything. He waited about a half an hour and then he wrote me back again. Scott Casey did. And he said, just let you know, we're not really brothers. We were just kayfabe brothers. I trained him. That was the story there. They're not really related. So Scott really didn't have any answers to me. And then Scott tried, you know, in, in typical uh, carny fashion, trying to sell me his book to close our conversation. <laughs> so so uh, I, I just, I don't, I don't have that type of money to uh, spare right now. Though he did offer to sign it for me as well. Autographed copy of Scott Casey's book. Anybody interested, go out there and find Scott Casey. He's on Facebook and uh, he's got a book out there and he, he says there's a lot of tickles and tackles in it. I don't know what that means. I don't know if I want to know what that means. That's You still got the ace in the hole, man. Maybe we can reach out to Missy Hyatt. Maybe I knew you were going to say that. I knew you were going to say that. Yeah, I've, I've already asked you to do it, but uh, I feel like you know she's responding and telling us stuff, too. I, it's worth a shot, man. We got to find out. Yeah, I, I, that's what I'll, that will be my mission this week. I will contact Missy Hyatt, and I will ask her maybe – she might be our last hope at this point, at least this for the next week or two until I can come up with some other names that, that may or may not be able to help us out. I know Teddy Long, let me holler at you, playa. Teddy Long's following the grenade. You can go right now to at Wrestling Grenade and look at the, all the, uh, the names that are following us. And Teddy Long's on that list, the, the actual Teddy Long. So maybe, I, I don't know if he was really paying attention to things like that. He was just really getting his career going as a talent. So I'm not, I'm not really sure how well he might remember something like that, but um, it's possible that he might be able to respond to us as well. So I'm just going to kind of look around and see what I can come up with that was there during that period. And maybe somebody will give us an answer someday. Maybe I can give a, let's give Lex Luger a shout. Maybe he'll, yeah, right. Lex Luger is all about Lex Luger. So never mind. He is class that will never pass. (laughs) That's right. Can I have your (laughs) autograph? No, you can't. Lex, can I have your autograph? <laughs> no, you can't. Yeah, I don't think he's uh, memorizing job guys' uh, nicknames and why they have them. I thought it was funnier. Sid Vicious over Steve Casey, not even the power bomb, just the clothesline. Pins him in 45 seconds. And I think Steve Casey's out the door. We might see him again uh, in syndication, but that was taped prior to this. For all intents and purposes, uh, that's the end of Steve Dane here in the NWA, I do believe. Started out with a bang and left with a whimper. I don't know that he started out with much of a bang. They, they, I mean, you know, I think they, Jordan, it was giving him some stuff there at the beginning. Yeah. Actually, didn't he win Win a few matches? And then Yeah, he was undefeated there the for wheels. a few weeks. Yeah. Yeah, the wheels fell off after that terrible match that they forgot to tell him to go home. <laughs> Shot town rumble. Oh, yeah. yeah. Midnight Ooh. Express in the ring over Fred Avery and the Enforcer. Great shit here. Uh, they're not on TV enough. It's very evident, you know, you might think it's sour grapes when Cornette shits all over Jim Hurd and talks about how they were de-emphasized, but as we go along here, you can see it. Uh, Cornette barely ever gets TV time, which makes no sense because he's one of the you know best promos in the business. He does get to host the Power Hour because Hurd does recognize him as a good talent as far as talking goes, 
Hertz just not a big sell on the Midnight Express. Yeah, a lot of it has to do with their size and and Bobby Eaton, you know, the Bobby Eaton's look. Heard wasn't a big fan. He didn't see him as nothing more than middle of the line type guys. Obviously, he dropped down their contracts. They were getting paid less. They're sitting here floundering at this point. They were meant to be, you know, sacrifices to the skyscrapers uh, during this loop of the house show tour. Of course, it gets changed around, altered a little bit. Cornette gets his boys out of that situation, but it's not looking good for them. But they get a win here. Double flapjack eating over the enforcer gets the win in about three and a half minutes. We follow the match with a promo from Cornette and the Midnights. They talk about the Freebirds, which I thought was interesting because we just saw the Freebirds in a feud with the Steiner brothers. Uh, they say the Freebirds are running and hiding from the title shots, but a title match is coming up soon, which is true on TV. It was a very generic promo. Again, like I said, the Steiners are feuding with the Birds now. Midnights have nothing to do specifically. It's very sad to see them go from feuding with the Road Warriors, feuding with the Rock and Roll Express, uh, the Fantastics, even that really brief feud, if you want to call it one, with Arn and Tully right before they left to go to the WWF. And now here, and, and then obviously with the new Midnights, or the original Midnights, I should say. And now here in 89, I mean, a little bit with the SST, but uh, really nothing most of this year. Yeah, it's crazy. Like you said, Cornette's one of the best talkers in the business uh, all time. And I think it's really, really cool. Like you hear a lot of these guys, like I, I just watched like a demolition virtual signing and i think somebody asked him like who is if you had to pick a manager who would it be and i know fuji gets shit on a lot especially by Meltzer, saying i guess it's what years of doing ribs get you and it's the hall of fame uh was the comment i think he made with fuji when he got announced they they picked fuji because he did everything he got their flights he got their hotel they didn't have to worry about that they got the rental cars he did, he did everything for them yeah, and he looked out for them, too. I mean, talent-wise and business-wise, Fuji had been there for an eternity by that point. Yeah, so, I mean, yeah, on TV, he may not be the greatest manager, but I guarantee you Demolition was as good as they was because they had really nothing to worry about except going in there and doing their match. I mean, Fuji took care of all of it, and the Cornette right. does the same thing for the Midnights, and that's just awesome. Like, you see the writing on the wall, so you try to pivot and get something better for you guys. And uh, I can appreciate the hell out of that. I know Jim Cornette has a lot of faults as a person, but when it comes to wrestling and just what he was able to do for his team and just how great of a talent he really was on air, it's just a shame that he is the way he is, so to speak, because he deserves to be recognized as one of the greatest. But he has so much baggage that you can't really do it, and it's unfortunate. It's just how he is. Yeah. I, he just doesn't care. I can't. I can't remember. I can't even remember who you. It was John Nord. I, he just. He's kind of like that. He just doesn't give a shit. Like this is me. I'm not going to be sorry for it. If you don't like it, don't listen to me. He's not going to buy into the cancel culture and give up what he has just because he offended somebody. Right. That's just not him. So um, you got to deal with that. If you don't like it, tough. I mean, but it's it's just sad that some talent like this can't get recognized or given something. And thankfully, they do end up getting something. I know it's with the dudes, but it's still, it's something. It's better than nothing. So, More promo time. This time, it's with another manager, Polly Dangerously. He talks about the Road Warriors. He says the roadies are no longer the reality of tag team wrestling. However, the SST are the roadies' reality. The cage matches are coming up. Enter the danger zone. They're really hard selling these house show cage matches. Back to the ring with Ron Simmons taking on John Brewer. Brewer attacks Ron, but that doesn't last long as the Iron Sheik comes to ringside holding the Iranian flag now with the Ayatollah's picture on it. Ron Simmons 
Uh, looked absolutely violent in this match, Steve. He really mauled John Brewer here. He really doesn't belong in this angle. This angle feels like an underneath, which it is, an underneath, co- not comedy, but just it's just lame. And Ron Simmons really sticks out as, as a future prospect. Does some great stuff here, very violent type moves. Catapult, John Brewer's throat across the bottom rope. Uh, uses a type of a camel clutch. Leaves. That's what the announcers sell it as what it's supposed to be. It's really more of a seated chin lock here. Uh, but Ron Simmons trying to honor Iron Sheik by doing his move. Spinebuster ends this one in about two and a half minutes. And post-match, Ron Simmons holds up the Iranian flag. For as good as Ron Simmons looked in the ring, this storyline here is just stupid. Yeah, I agree. And uh, I know there's a danger zone coming up with him and Sheik. And Edis looks like a million bucks. Like He looks like he's ready for that big push. And this is definitely not it. So... I don't know when this ends, to be honest wait. with you. Yeah, it's just, uh, it can't be too long. I know, I know Sheik's not around for a terribly long time here. Uh, he'll return again in 90 and uh, for a little bit once they yes. uh, accidentally allow his contract to roll over. <laughs> it's uh, promo time with uh, the Stinger. He says the great Muda has proven that he can steal his TV title, but not that he can beat the Stinger. Muda has to beat Sting before he can say it's his title. I thought the promo was short, but more importantly, it was one of the promos that Sting cut that actually made sense to me. I agree with you there. Short and sweet, and it made sense. That's what that's all you can ask for from Sting at this point. It's the Steiner brothers, along with uh, Missy Hyatt, taking on Scrap Iron, Bill Ford, and Trent Knight. Robin Green at ringside. She meets Rick Steiner at the entranceway, hands him some M&Ms. I think they were peanut M&Ms. Halfway yes. through the match, uh, Rick gives up. He doesn't even need to wrestle. He wants to go hang out with his girlfriend, so... Rick actually goes and sits down at ringside next to Robin Green in the crowd, letting Scott Steiner finish the match by himself. Uh, this is where Rick Steiner grabs, grabs Robin Green in a headlock and starts snagging her around. Looked pretty violent. I mean, he was doing it, uh, you know, to be uh, fun, but it's one of those don't know your own strength type things. I had to laugh at it. Nowadays, somebody would probably call and complain. Yeah, probably. Frankensteiner on George South and a murderous Steiner line on Scrap Iron Bill Ford. Ford doesn't take a bump on a clothesline, and I think that kind of pisses Scott off. So Scott hooks him in a German and then launches him. Release German across the ring, forces Bill Ford to take a backflip onto his stomach. And Scott, with a rolling <laughs> belly-to-belly, gets the win here on Bill Ford in three minutes and six seconds. Yeah, that's exactly over. what I was talking about. What's that? Scott. That these guys can just do whatever the hell they want. Like, oh, you're not going to bump for me? Okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah. You're going to bump today, boy. And so, um, yeah, it's just awesome, man. They're I think great. Ford, you know, watching this match, I think Ford just had a brain fart. I don't think he meant not to bump. I think it just caught him off guard, and he was like, oh, shit, I should have bumped, but if I bump now, it'll look stupid. So he kind of just staggered, and he paid for it. It's promo time with the Steiners and Missy Hyatt. The chase for the world tag titles is on. The Steiners reference the Freebirds, the world champions, the Skyscrapers, and even Lex Luger. Of course, Rick had just wrestled Luger recently, so they're lumping him into this as well. Scotty cuts the promo. Rick plays around. He punches Scott. He punches JR. He starts to punch Missy Hyatt and thinks better of it. Rick finally winds up mocking Lex Luger's pose, which was very comical. I should get some pictures of that, actually. And he says that the PS in Michael Hayes stands for Purely sissy. And that's pretty much the uh, Steiner Brothers promo in a nutshell. Moving on, back to the ring. It's flying Brian Pillman. He's back in action already after the attack from Norman. Taking on the bounty hunter here. Norman comes out with a 2 by 4 and breaks it over his own head. 
Teddy Long slaps Norman once again. We saw that on Pro. Threatens him with the key to get him to leave the ringside area. And with the bounty hunter in the ring, Jim Ross wonders if Parts Unknown is a town where everyone wears a mask. The enforcers from Parts Unknown, the bounty hunters from Parts Unknown. An attempt at a joke from Jim Ross here doesn't really get very far. What do you think of Norman coming down here and breaking a board over his head? It just felt like, you know, they started to go where they needed to with Norman and then they come out and do something like that. I don't think they know what to do. And it's just a waste of time as far as Norman goes. I'm already over it. And it's just time to move on. So Pillman finishes off the bounty hunter with a nice looking missile dropkick, a dangerous plancha, and a reverse crossbody ends the match in two minutes and 13 seconds. And it's promo time once again. Paulie dangerously talked reality while the Road Warriors have a response. And Paulie dangerously out here earlier talking about reality. There's going to be some reality set in later tonight on the Power Hour in the captain's match when Hawk takes on Sam Moose. That's still to come. But what about reality? Reality? Paulie, you know what reality is. Four times out of five years, tag team in the air. That's reality. Why don't you ask those other guys and everybody knows who you are what reality is all about. That's why we're not here in the NWA anymore, and we still are. Now, Samoa, you're going to find out what reality really is. And James Madden, no matter where it is, we're going to kick your butt. Tell him, Hawk. You know something? That little worm, Polly Dangerously, forgot to mention it, is that it wasn't just the Samoans that put us away in Marietta. There were three Freebirds. It was five on two. And he said, we taste their blood. Well, that was the only part of the mix I like. I like tasting my own blood. So if I like tasting my own blood, can you imagine how much I would like tasting their blood? I'm gonna like it a whole lot. Polly Dangerously, you're a little man living in a big man's world. The Samoans, they're going back in a flotilla to that scumbag island they came off of. We stack on danger, dying on death, and dead men don't make money. Tell that to Elvis. <laughs> and that's pretty much the end of the promo there. Hawk uh, recycling a line he used uh, at the beginning of the year, and I, I just kind of remembered how he finished at that time with the uh, tell that to Elvis. But anyways, uh, he wants to taste the Samoans' blood. I'll pass. And once again, mocking their, their country. Yeah. I thought it was a really good promo from all around. I mean, it's 1989, so it is what it is. If you get offended by him talking about Samoa, I'm sorry. <laughs> that don't need to be about it now. But, um, yeah, all countries were evil uh, back then in wrestling, unless they were the United States and probably Canada. That's right. That's, that's just, right. That's just how so, shit works um, in the world of wrestling. Yep. So you just take it for what it is and be happy that you have the ability to watch this stuff. But yeah, um, I thought this was a solid promo. They did a good job, especially Animal. Back to the ring, it's Dr. Death, Steve Williams, taking on Mike Rotunda. So this is match three in their feud, but it doesn't count as part of the best of three series. Seems odd they're having matches in the middle of the best of three series that isn't part of the best of three series. Very confusing here. Yeah, this is where I got confused. Like, is this match three? But they were selling it as at, at all being match three. So right. uh, that's not. where I got right. Yeah, I got confused there. And it could be confusing because Doc's even sporting the headgear here again for this match. Mm-hmm. Mike Rotunda works the boring holds, the chin lock, the abdominal stretch, uses the ropes for leverage. Dr. Death comes back with the Oklahoma Stampede, but Mike's legs kick referee Tommy Young and send him down to the mat. 
So Doc can't get the count. Mike Rotunda tries to toss Doc over the top rope, but Doc reverses and tosses Mike Rotunda over the top rope. And Tommy Young sees it. And thus, it's Dr. Death who gets disqualified in eight minutes and two seconds. Post-match, Mike Rotunda posts Dr. Death on the outside and then beats Doc down with his own ring gear. And I guess it makes sense to kind of push towards that no DQ match that they're going to have on Pro, but they never, or Worldwide, whichever one it is, but they never even mention it on this show. So, like, if you if you just watch Saturday Night, Power Hour, and Main Event, you're not going to have any idea what's going on in syndication. I don't think they ever really talk about it. Sometimes they'll show you highlights if it was something big, but for the most part, they don't even talk about it. They act like it doesn't even exist. They they push Saturday night, You got they push the main event. The main event, they push the next week's power hour. So there's really no continuity here. So you, they're just assuming like nobody's even watching this best two out of three. So here's a match between Mike and Doc. Just here you go. It, it serves no purpose. We move on to the NWA World Champion. Woo! It's Ric Flair out for a promo, and he's sporting a red suit, a theater usher-looking red suit. Maybe an upscale theater usher, but nonetheless, it's the color that I would see like an usher wear or something, at least like the, the gold dust usher. So, yeah, I thought it was really odd color for Ric Flair here in the suit department. But nevertheless, he's gone on record and told the world that he wasn't bowing out until Ric Flair, or excuse me, until Terry Funk was carried out. When your name is Ric Flair, the bottom line is that Terry Funk will learn to love it because he's going to have it that way. So Ric Flair, obviously, just cutting another promo. He's working, uh, you know, working the house shows with Terry Funk as the view continues through the rest, at least until November. Yeah, solid promo. That that suit jacket threw me off, man. <laughs> <laughs> I've never seen I never seen Flair in a bright color like that. Yeah, uh, it's usually your grays and your browns or whatever. But yeah, that bright red, man. Like you said, that's perfect. Movie theater usher for sure. And we close the show. What an odd way to close the show, too. Ranger Ross randomly gets a squash match here over Keith Steinberg. It's like they had time to fill. Jim Ross says uh, he's yeah. not related to Ranger Ross, in case anybody wondered. Har har, JR. A very basic match, very armbar esque match. Combat kick wins it in about three minutes. Ranger Ross gets the win over Keith Steinborn to close the show. And they announce that there will be no main event tomorrow night, but we'll get to that here at the end of the power hour. And yes, I said the power hour because at the end of this two-hour block of World Championship Wrestling at 8.05, we get the power hour uh, at an unusual day and an unusual time. And we kick this show off. And this is also from the Centroplex in Baton Rouge, taped on August 1st. NWA Power Hour for the night of August 12th, 8.05. Mike Rotunda takes on Shane Douglas to get the, the, get the show going. References to Shane's partner getting his face smashed. Uh, Johnny Ace does have a fractured cheekbone. As we've mentioned, he'll be out a few weeks. I don't know when he returns, but unfortunately, I must warn you guys that eventually he does return. Much like a couple weeks ago, Mike Rotunda did with Steve Casey. This week with Shane Douglas, he offers up his letterman's jacket from Syracuse if he's caught cheating. Uh, this match goes on. I wrote seven minutes of nothing. Very slow. Rotunda finally, with a thumb to the eye in the corner, takes over. Shane makes the comeback, the 10 punches in the corner. Mike dumps him over the top rope, but the referee doesn't call it because Shane lands on the apron. Uh, back inside with a fisherman cradle by Mike Rotunda gets the win. Eight minutes, 58 seconds. Mike Rotunda, the winner. Yeah, I thought they did some decent wrestling on the ground a little bit. Shane was using the speed to get out of it and stuff like that. After watching this match, I kind of felt like Shane, a solo, could have been a lot, would have been a lot better off. And he could have been something decent in 1989, not necessarily a Pillman level type, but he definitely could have been a decent undercard 
type talent by himself. Uh, it's unfortunate he got paired with Johnny Ace and strapped with the dude's gimmick because I felt like he had that he had the ability in the ring to be entertaining and something that could probably get over if, if done right. So, um, but yeah, this really wasn't nothing match. It's just a Mike Rotunda match that was boring, but Shane looked decent. It's time once again for ah, ah, WNN with Gordon Soley, the New Zealand militia injured Johnny Ace. Didn't we just say that? Uh, Gordon's probably been boozing here. He's repeating himself, or at least repeating what's already been said on the show. How low have the dudes fallen to be taken out by the militia is what I wrote here. I, I mentioned that earlier, so we'll move on. Eddie Gilbert, we learn, has challenged the Great Muda to a no-DQ match, and that's upcoming. Why is the Iron Sheik with Ron Simmons? Gordon Soley's known Ron Simmons forever because... Sully, obviously uh, an announcer in Florida Championship Wrestling, Championship Wrestling in Florida, I should say. And Ron Simmons, the All-American down there in Florida State. So Gordon has seen, Ron, you know, known Ron Simmons forever, I guess, since prior to wrestling. And then, of course, he called some of his early matches down there in Florida. So Gordon's selling that just like he did the Lex Luger stuff when he first came in. He fears Ron is now following the Sheik's philosophy in the ring and his theology and religion, uh, which is apparently dangerous. Eric Embry, we learned has won the WCCW, the world class, uh, from PY Chuhai, which means uh, eventually here, for anybody following, it's going to get a name change in the upcoming days to the USWA because Jerry Jarrett's already bought it out. We have a look at the NWA Top 10. We learn that there's trouble between the SST and Pauly Dangerously. Uh, Gordon Sully puts over the Samoans, says he doesn't trust Pauly, and there's no WWF, no territories outside of that quick mention of world class this week. Looks like we're losing the charm of the WNN. Uh, what made it different? Yeah, I'm with you, man. It, I remember when I, I think I when I first told you, I was like, "Holy shit!" He talked about WWF on this on this the first time Power Hour debuted. He was on there. He talked about the talked about WWF and pretty much everywhere else. And now I don't know how many episodes are in as far as the Power Hour goes. Uh, what two months? And that start in June. So yeah, we got June and July. Actually, one month really. Um, because it started at the end of June. So about five or six episodes and it's already putting the kibosh on him talking about that stuff. It, it feels like, and that, that was the charm and the uniqueness of the, of the news network. Um, but for some reason we still have Funk's grill, which is terrible. So. Yeah. They give Terry nothing to work with there and he's not doing himself any favors. He's not really taking it seriously and really he shouldn't be. No. We move on with this show, though. It's the great Muda taking on Eddie Gilbert, and he's got Missy Hyatt with him, and oh my, uh, absolutely the best outfit to date, uh, Missy Hyatt oh my here. Goodness. This is a no disqualification match. Anything goes. Jim Ross even puts over Missy's cups, and he wasn't kidding in this black dress here. There's pictures on Twitter, people, at Wrestling Grenade. Go check them out. This is the, the angle I was talking about earlier at the top of the show. This is the second time that the great Muda uh, miss Missy Hyatt this time she is helped up onto the apron by Eddie Gilbert, as usual. And Muda runs over and grabs her by the hair, yanks her back, and just spews mist right into her face. And she goes down like a ton of bricks, rolls off the apron, starts screaming for Eddie. My only issue here is Eddie Gilbert never rushes to her aid, never even comes to check over on her, ever. Uh, she's finally checked on and carried away by the Steiner brothers as Eddie goes after Muda instead of checking on his woman. Seemed a little weird to me, like I... Not saying he shouldn't have went after Muda because that's the story you're trying to tell, but wouldn't he shouldn't he even at least went over and checked on her before he attacked Muda? Yeah, I mean, you feel like you at least go over, look at her face, and see the mist, and be like, "Oh, that's it." You can get some real easy heat there, you know, some fury. People are going to get into it a lot more, and you look at your woman; she's down. 
you look up at Muda, then you just go in and attack, and what a visual, you know? Your woman gets that, and then you just beat the shit out of him. So. Yeah, I think the better story here would have been, uh, like you said, he comes over, he checks on Missy. The Steiners arrive at the same time. They say, don't worry, we got her. You go take care of him. Uh, it all makes sense. It's very easy to get into. Yeah. It's, just, it's really odd here. It's Eddie just beats her, and it's odd. You can hear Missy screaming Eddie off camera, and he's not even paying attention because he's so engulfed in beating the shit out of Muda here all around ringside. So I thought that was a little off, but, you know, maybe I'm nitpicking. I don't really know. Just seemed, I, I just figured somebody like an Eddie Gilbert with the brain, the mind of Eddie Gilbert would have maybe incorporated basically what we were saying. I don't know if he just is checked out because, of, again, the writing's on the wall for him too, but who knows? He just doesn't seem invested. He hasn't since the Great American Bash, to be honest with you. It's probably been longer than that, but you really notice it at the Bash. He's not doing anything for Sting, and now this. So he, he just seems checked out. And so Muda takes over, finally, after Eddie Gilbert beats him around ringside. Muda takes over the spinning back kick. Eddie tries to regain take the momentum, but Gary Hart winds up posting Eddie Gilbert. And remember, it's no disqualification, so these things are illegal. That leads to Tommy Rich, Eddie Gilbert's buddy, coming down to ringside to even the odds on the floor. Great Muda chokes Gilbert with some tape. And uh, Gilbert winds up running Muda's head into the buckle to finally break the choke. Muda with low blows, but once again, they're legal. Eddie Gilbert comes back choking Muda with the same tape. Gary Hart tries to interfere, but Tommy Rich runs in and locks Gary Hart in a sleeper. Muda stops that by spraying Tommy Rich in the face with mist. So now we have two people out there missed. First Missy Hyatt, now Tommy Rich. And Tommy made sure to wear a white shirt. I don't know if you caught that into the ring. Mm -hmm. So it showed up even even more. So Missy got the green mist. Tommy Rich winds up with the red mist. And this really happens. Remember, Tommy Rich has the sleeper on Gary Hart. Muda sprays Tommy Rich. And while this is going on, Gary Hart staggers over. And Eddie Gilbert comes off the top rope with a crossbody block onto Gary Hart for the three count. What the fuck? Hokey, cartoony-ass bullshit. We've seen it before. We saw it again. When Hogan pinned Flair in a strap match against Vader. I hated when WCW did this shit. It's a complete cop-out. Don't book the match if you don't want to book the finish. This match went 7 minutes and 10 seconds. Eddie Gilbert gets the win over Gary Hart. Yeah, it made no sense to me. Uh, my comment was, what a stupid-ass finish. That's the problem when you have a guy like Muda. It's no knock on him but they're kind of painted into a corner. You want to keep him undefeated probably for that TV title run, but you also have this side story with Eddie Gilbert that you have going on. So what do you do? Uh, this isn't it. Don't do an ODQ match. I mean, you can have the guy get DQ'd or whatever, and it's not going to really affect him, but what a cop-out. What a garbage finish, and just stupid. It was an overall really good match. It was very entertaining. Just a terrible way to end it. Yeah, and the fight's not even over here. So Muda's already misted uh, Missy Hyatt green. He's misted Tommy Rich red. He goes back to green here, a trifecta of miss, as he green missed Eddie Gilbert. So green, red, green. He should have saved this for Christmas. But Muda missed three people in, in a single match. Tommy Rich is still selling, but he manages to find a chair, grabs a chair, and runs the great Muda off as Eddie Gilbert's now down. Not the most ideal match to blow off these two. Uh, but at least they gave them something if this winds up being the end. Yeah, and at least Tommy Rich did, still did a decent job of uh, selling, even though right. he had to get out to 
to get moved off of Eddie. So he did better than Trent Knight selling that flame. <laughs> and and the, the major selling point post-match was that Muda is still undefeated. Once again, don't book it then. If, if you booked yourself into this hole or this corner and you don't want Eddie, you, you feel like Eddie should come out on top because of what's been happening to Missy High. It makes sense to me, but you don't want Muda to job, which he probably shouldn't at this point and, you know, working the main events now. But it, it, I don't know, man. I feel like they booked themselves into a corner and Gary Hart was how they booked themselves out of the corner. It just, it didn't really work for me here. The, the finish. I thought the match was going good. I like the the pre-match stuff with Missy. I like the post-match stuff here. Uh, it just it felt like we needed a, a real finish here between uh, Gilbert and Muda. Yeah, I agree with you there. It's on to Funk's Grill, one of your favorite segments. They got the Steiner brothers here this week. So this is kind of fun because it's Rick Steiner playing around with Terry Funk. Terry's standing here in no shirt and a bow tie and a suit jacket and a cowboy hat. Funk says he has daughters. Uh, Rick wants to know their ages. I thought that was a little bit creepy. <laughs> Uh, if Terry said if he had sons, he'd want them to be like Scott Steiner. <laughs> he says Scotty has possibilities after wrestling. Rick, not so much. Rick wants to play with Funk's earring. Funk's had a big dangling earring there. Terry tries to trash Ric Flair, but Rick Steiner has fun with him instead. Scott calls Terry the George Burns of wrestling. For all you youngins who don't know who George Burns was, he was 100 years old forever. He had been on TV since the beginning of TV. And yeah, he was like a hundred years old. So he's referring to Terry Funk as a old man. So Rick asks Funk if he wants to, uh, if he went to school with George Burns. Uh, Funk gets a, a little upset with that one. Uh, Funk, <laughs> Funk teases Rick Steiner. He says, "Do you know Alex?" And of course, Rick Steiner knows Alex. Funk holds up his own fist and says, "This is Alex's little bro- brother, Knuckles." And. Uh, <laughs> And and he starts talking, mouthing, talking uh, with the uh, the hand, and Rick does it back with his hand. Absolutely ridiculous. Oh God! Rick Steiner offers Terry Funk some skull, and Terry takes it, starts chewing it right there in the promo. Terry thinks that he and Rick Steiner should team up. Rick says he has twenty dollars to his name. Funk says that they can at least have some fun with that. Just twenty dollars. Rick Steiner's poor, of course. Uh, I would have, I would throw in a Robin Green joke here, but we haven't really gotten to the dates yet. Uh, at least not in, not in this world. Who knows what the hell WCW is doing? Uh, but Terry Funk trying to uh, take advantage of a, a young, impressionable Rick Steiner and, and his money, his financial situation here. Uh, by the way, of a wrestling segment, this had zero purpose. Uh, but at least it was so stupid, it was entertaining as far as TV goes. Uh, yeah, I guess. I mean, Rick Steiner made it. Yeah, Funk asked if he could manage his money and be partners, and Rick says he only has 10 to 20 bucks, and that's for his future. He doesn't want to spend it all. Yeah, it, it did nothing. I was just waiting for the punchline, and it, it never came. It just kind of – most of these just end abruptly. Like, it, he's yeah. in the middle of something, and then it, then it just stops. and like, all right, we're done. Very weird. It, it, it's weird, and it, it's consistent. That's how it usually ends, and it's just uh, – it was stupid. It was a waste of time. If it wasn't Rick Steiner, I wouldn't have enjoyed any of it. But uh, for the most part, I'm just Funk's girl needs to go. It, it's not what those segments are for, and it, it's brutal. On to the main event of the Power Hour. It's a captain's match featuring Road Warrior Hawk with Paul Ellering taking on Samu the SST with Paul E. Dangerously. It's no cell mania as the match spills to the floor. Neither guy going to sell for the other one. Stiff shots throughout the match. Both guys 
uh, work a rest hold. Hawk with a chin lock. Samu with the nerve hold. Hawk comes back with a hangman's neckbreaker. Big power slam, but misses a top rope clothesline. Paulie dangerously winds up handing Samu the cell phone. Ellering distracts Samu so that Hawk can take the phone away. The referee is busy with Paulie. And so Hawk, now with the phone, nails Samu and gets the win in 9 minutes and 10 seconds. And after the contest, Samu argues with Dangerously about the loss. Uh, Dangerously's pissed off that Samu lost. Samu's pissed off somehow that Dangerously got the phone into play to begin with. And Samu winds up destroying the cell phone himself, uh, slamming it, ripping it up, throwing it on the mat, and leaving the ring alone, leaving Pauly Dangerously staying alone in the ring. Now, Pauly's still the manager beyond this, but this is obviously the beginning of tension, or at least the continuation of the tension between the SST and their manager. Yeah, and like we didn't see any of this, so like they, I'm, I'm assuming they filmed Power Hour to air on the, its normal day, the 11th, right. because on the pro and worldwide shows, on the syndication anyway, like Pettacino and Soli were talking about the SST splitting up uh, with Paulie, so it's a little out of line because they moved Power Hour to Saturday this week. But yeah, this is what they were talking about, so um, at least we've seen it and know what the heck's going on. Right, Pretty and Paulie. Yeah, and Paulie will uh, stick with the uh, Samoans at least for another month. And we close out the show. It's the Wrestler of the Week. It's the fabulous Freebirds. You know, Cornette and Jim Ross have already asked who's picking Wrestler of the Week. Now I'm asking who's picking Wrestler of the, the Freebirds. I mean, really? Cornette, <laughs> Cornette, <laughs> Cornette says if it's Joe Pettacino, he will expose that Joe is the illegitimate twin brother of Roseanne Barr. So both Cornette and Paulie get lines in on Pettacino. This week, once again. <laughs> I marked it that one, too. That was funny. And we close the show with Jim Ross announcing that there is no NWA main event tomorrow. And Cornette goes ballistic. How can there be no main event? Meanwhile, at the bottom of the t- the bottom of the show, there's a scroller running across. that says, don't worry, Jim. TBS has agreed for a special episode tomorrow after all. Because it's NWA and these are things they do. So the entire night on world championship wrestling and the power hour, they've been selling. There's no main event tomorrow. And at the very, very end of the show, they run a scroller that says, yes, there is. That's like NWA in a nutshell right there. It really is. Like, mean, you, you can't c- tell me you just found out at the last <laughs> yes. minute of a three hour wrestling block that you got an hour on, on Sunday. No, absolutely there's no not. way. Right. You knew that you knew this at the beginning. You knew this on Saturday. You should have been rolling that scroller all night. Every third segment on a two hour show you should have had that scroller. Yeah, and it's a very yeah. basic show. It was a last minute. I'm not saying it was last minute. If they if they had it on the scroller, they could have scrolled the entire episode. There's no doubt about yeah. that. It's not like it's not like that was added as the show was airing. So you're you you hit the the nail on the head right there. It was a last minute decision in general, because it really was initially canceled, uh, I believe for a Braves game or, or something along those lines. And th- at the last moment they decided they, they could air it and it does wind up airing and, but they had nothing taped for it because they had planned in, in advance for a few weeks that there would be no main event. So what do they do? It's more of a best of episode. And this is where you got confused again, because I don't think you realized that as the show got going and you were like, I'm pretty sure that we already saw this before. And that's when I, I was yeah. explaining to you, yeah, we did. It's it's very much a best of show. They, they were they were not planned or ready for this show, so they just slapped them things together. I honestly thought they did a pretty good job based on the time and, and what they were given here. 
So it's a special unplanned episode. Uh, they they made the best of it. They re-aired the steel cage match with Jimmy Garvin and Terry Gordy versus the Road Warriors, the match where the SST wind up running in the Marietta Massacre match from the Power Hour from a month ago. That's how we kick off the show, the Dynamic Dudes versus the New Zealand Militias from Pro. Once again, this is the match where Johnny Ace gets his cheekbone injured. That's That clip is aired. We see a match that hasn't taken place yet, but is going to take place next week on Pro. But I'm thinking that this was they meant to air match number two of the three-match series for Pro here between Rotunda and Dr. Death as part of this episode of the main event here for August 13th. But instead, they wind up airing next week's match between Doc and Rotunda instead. So we see the culmination of the three-match series here on the main event. <laughs> if they didn't mean to give this away, oh, Lord. <laughs> yeah. Well, if you remember you a few weeks laugh. back, you remember a few weeks back when they, they had Mike Rotunda issue the open challenge to Doc and instead of Doc responding and accepting the challenge, it was Doc already announcing the outcome of their first match, which hadn't aired yet. So it's very likely that, once again, they've made another mistake here. I'm shocked. I'm so, I'm so sure. <laughs> oh, man. And so we kick off match number three. And remember, it was a scientific challenge, and now it's turned into a no-holds-barred, no-DQ match, uh, based on what Rotunda asked for at the end of Pro here just yesterday. And Doc is out to bad to the bone. And we see a clip from the match number one where Doc gets DQ'd. So this is where we actually see how Doc got DQ'd in the first match. So this is the only way we saw it because we don't have the the episode. And this is basically the rubber match between the two, even though I guess the Saturday night match didn't count. So whatever. And I, I like the idea that they had gone scientific in the prior two matches. So this being no DQ, the very first thing they do is begin to throw down and trade punches right out of the gate. I thought that was pretty cool. Rotunda whips Dr. Death into the ropes, and Doc goes plowing through the ropes all the way to the outside, runs through the uh, guardrail on the outside. Uh, fun spot by Dr. Death, Steve Williams. Williams hulks up. Oklahoma stampede right away in the match, but he doesn't cover. And that's always a no-no when you hit your finisher and don't make the cover. Dr. Death may pay for it. Let's see if he does. Doc charges for a tackle. Rotunda pulls Tommy Young in the way instead. Another Oklahoma stampede, but Tommy Young is down. And in comes Teddy Long, which I thought was just odd. He just happened to be hanging around. Teddy Long rushes in the former referee, now manager, and counts one, two, three, and Dr. Death thinks he wins the match until he turns around and realizes it was Teddy Long who made the count as Teddy Long uh, sheepishly sneaks away on his tippy toes in cartoon fashion, only to be caught by Dr. Death. And as Dr. Death realizes what's happened, he goes after Teddy Long, but Rotunda with a knee in the back from behind and a roll-up as Tommy Young comes to and counts to three and Mike Rotunda gets the win. Match wins seven minutes. Mike Rotunda wins the best of seven series or best of three series. <laughs> Should have been a best of seven the way they show these matches. I guess you can just manhandle a referee in an ODQ match. They got to work on uh, ideas like that, though, man. That's, that's a no-no, man. Keep your hands off the officials. Yeah, I agree. You never really seen that before where they take advantage of the no DQ by beating up the referee. Right. But yeah, this is just, I don't know, man. What's Teddy Long have to do with any of this? Yeah, that um, threw me off. And I, you know, the only thing I got out of all this when this was happening, as it happened, when it was done and over with was, you know what? Mike Rotunda would have been a perfect fit in Teddy Long's group. 
I'm not saying he needed to come out with Norman or the skyscrapers, but he needed somebody to talk for him. And it, it would have given him more of an edge if he had just been more of an asshole, an arrogant prick, collegiate, you know, turn pro wrestler. I think this would have worked. I, I, I was just envisioning it as I saw this unfold. And I thought, you know what? I mean, it would have been a lot better than what winds up happening with Rotunda. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with you there. I, anybody, not, well, I wouldn't say anybody. Teddy Long's the best manager the NBA has at this point. Uh, he might be, well, not, not take that back. Paulie and Cornette's still there. I had a brain fart. Sorry. Uh, it's pretty early in the morning. I, I agree with you. I think he would have worked really well with Teddy Long. Mike could have used it. We wouldn't have got the stupid idiot moron promos, uh, that we got every week from him. And it would have gave him a nice change of pace. Teddy Long can get some heat on him. He can just go in and beat the hell out of people. Just go in there and outwork him because he knows he can out-wrestle him. Add a little edge to him. But instead, we get Captain Mike. And we close out this episode of the main event. It's a replay from last week's World Championship Wrestling with Sting and Eddie Gilbert taking on the New Zealand Militia. This is where Funk and Muda attack Sting and Eddie Gilbert. Ric Flair winds up coming out and making the save and stealing Terry Funk's cowboy boots. And that concludes this edition of the main event. And that'll wrap up this week's episode of The Grenade as well, Steve. Yeah, it was a pretty fun show. Uh, a little different, change of pace. I only get one week of TV, but there's so much news. It's kind of like our first episode. There's so much news, you can't ignore it. So you got to discuss it. And uh, that's what we did here. So it, it was fun. It's different, but it's fun. Yeah, I feel like this may be the first time we've only done one week of TV, but with five episodes of TV and uh, over an hour, yeah, at least an hour worth of news, it was just a a very packed show <laughs> with just this one week of TV. So we hope, uh, hopefully we filled the void with all of that news heading in. It's just a, a big changeover in a lot of things here as we come out of the bash and move into the final leg of the uh, NWA here in 1989. Yeah, uh, we're getting on that home stretch and... Um... Some good shows coming up. I'm I'm pretty excited for the Fall Brawl. Uh, Halloween Havoc, of course, making its debut. Uh, isn't there? There's another clash in November, right? Yeah, the Funk and uh, Ric Flair. I quit. Yeah, that's the New York Knockout. Pretty sure. So yeah, and then we got Starcade, of course. So there's a lot, a lot coming up that I'm excited for. I can't wait to kind of put a bow on it and see how it ends. I mean, obviously, it's wrestling; it never ends. This continues into next year, but. I'm interested to see how it finishes up here. Yeah, so uh, on next week's episode, just to give you guys a, a little precursor to what to expect, the August 19th weekend, the episode of World Championship Wrestling that was scheduled to air doesn't make air. They actually accidentally replay an episode of WCW from three weeks prior, and uh, that's just one of the issues that we find over the next couple of weeks of the NWA television and it said that they didn't find the right tape, the, the right tape they meant to air for at least another hour, hour and a half after the show ended. So they were unable to replace it at any point in the actual episode. And in case anybody's wondering, why didn't they change it when they realized, you know, that they were playing the wrong episode? So uh, they just went ahead and played the uh, an old episode. And that was just one of the issues. And then, of course, as I mentioned, the, the August 26th episode of World Championship Wrestling also uh, there's an issue there where uh, someone forgets to actually record, press record on the cameras as uh, they're recording the, some of the main angles for that show. And so they have to run a uh, an emergency taping to get some shit on that show as well. So 
just a big clusterfuck uh, that is the NWA right now in the summer here. All the wheels fell off directly after the Great American Bash, and uh, it's sad because the 26th is uh, supposed to be Ric Flair's first episode as Booker. So it doesn't bode well for the beginning of Ric Flair's booking <laughs> regime, but I'm sure it has to get better beyond that. It can't, can't get much worse than the next two weeks on TBS. No, absolutely not. It's just amazing to me that this is supposed to be a top-flight organization, and uh, this shit happened. Like, I just, I, how do you explain this? Uh, and we'll get into more detail next week, obviously, right. but uh, I just don't know how you can be a company that does this. And in 1989, CNN meant something. And could you imagine them airing a news story on something, and then they air the complete opposite? Like, they talk about it, and then they air the complete opposite story. Like, that doesn't make any sense. Like, how's that? That's not possible. So, yeah, it's his WCW. I mean, they're not necessarily WCW yet, but for all intents and purposes, they are certainly by the way they're running the, the ship right now. Not a good way to start if you're Ric Flair. I'm, no, I'm nervous. Can't imagine he's very happy, happy with the situation, but we'll get it. We'll get more not. into that next week. It's a, a lot to talk about. Like I said, we'll, uh, in three weeks time, we'll be covering the fall brawl. Watch along. Uh, Clash of the Champions watch along on our next Clash of the Champions we'll be doing. Uh, but for the next two weeks, it'll be two weeks and another two weeks of NWA TV and probably some more news and notes as we get going. And hopefully Missy Hyatt will get back to us about Steve Casey, Steve Dane, and uh, maybe maybe we'll hear from uh, some of the other former NWA uh, superstars as they uh, might give us some more insight into some of these other stories going on right now in the NWA here in 1989. But until then, man, Steve, I just appreciate you being here. Another three-hour show, even though they only did a, a week of TV. It was a two hours of World Championship Wrestling, an hour of news and notes. So just a lot of uh, filling the gap here as we fall out of the Great American Bash. Yeah, there's a lot going on, and the NWA is constantly changing. So these things happen, but it was a blast, man. I felt like it was a, it was a really good show, and I was happy to be here. Promotional consideration paid for by the following. And once again, I've got to say thanks to all of our loyal listeners. We appreciate you listening, subscribing, and downloading The Grenade. You can find The Grenade, Monday Warfare, the WrestleCopia News Network, and other upcoming podcasts over at WrestleCopia.com. That's WrestleCopia.com. And all of your favorite podcast streaming apps from Apple, iTunes, Spotify, Google Pod, Podcast Addict, and so many more. Remember to follow The Grenade on Twitter at Grenade. That's at R-A-S-S-L-I-N Grenade. Lastly, I encourage everyone once again to please have a look at our Patreon account over at patreon.com slash WrestleCopia. I encourage you to please subscribe at least one month. Give it a try and join in on the fun. There's no commitment. Cancel at any time. But we'd like to think you'll stick around based on the offerings available. It's 14 tiers of goodies over there, and it all starts as low as a buck. A $1 tier. We've really been pumping out a series of watch-alongs ranging from the WWF Coliseum video series to random pay-per-views, including 1995 pay-per-views that make a great complimentary piece to the Monday Warfare podcast. Also on Patreon, our Power Hour podcast is now up and running, where we review the current product, recent pay-per-views, and discuss a variety of topics from every era. It's unfiltered, uncensored, and nothing is off-limits on the Power Hour podcast. We invested quite a bit of money into the podcast network up front. We want to keep the Grenade, Monday Warfare, and other planned podcasts up and running for 2021. So we'd greatly appreciate your subscription to ensure that we continue to produce quality products each and every week. 
So please stop over. That address again is patreon.com slash WrestleCopia. And please subscribe, show some love, let us know you care, let us know you're there. And with all of that out of the way, it's that time again. Time to say goodbye, but we will return next week. And until that time, this is Ray Russell, and for my co-host Stephen Ekstat saying, from pillar to post and coast to coast, you pull the pin and we'll pick up the pieces right here on the Wrestling Memory Grenade. See you next week. Don't miss it. Be there. How did she teach you how to do the medicine, Bubba?